Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back for another episode of Radio Free Mormon, along with Bill Real and Mormon Discussion. Uh, Radio Free Mormon, how are you doing today? Good morning. I am just fine at 6.05 this Thursday morning. Yeah, you're an hour behind me, so that, that kind of sucks, because uh, you, you and I had talked, and I said, yeah, 7 a.m. works great for me, but that puts you at 6 a.m. So, uh, so Radio Free Mormon's in here bright and early to help each of you as listeners come to grips today uh, with the Quinton Cook face-to-face, uh, which also had a couple of uh, church historians involved as well. One of those was Matthew Groh, and the other was Kate Holbrook. Yeah, so and I think she's she's done quite a bit behind the si- uh, scenes with a lot of the feminine, uh, female or feminine history of the church uh, that's come out in recent years. Um, we we ought to just probably just jump into this. Quentin Cook gives us a little bit of an introduction. The listener's going to notice we're not using all of the audio. Um, we wanted to just pick out the the pieces and parts that were kind of crucial to the conversation that RFM and I were going to have today. Uh, so. You won't notice all of the audio, but uh, but a lot of it's in here. We we did make sure that each of the questions were included uh, from the listeners in that face to face, and so with that, let's go to soundbite number one. Church history can be a significant source of faith, but some has have, for some it's been misunderstood or overlooked, and some have been obscured and crowded out by larger concerns of the world. Some people have even purposely misrepresented stories of the past to sow doubt. In learning more, we will bind our hearts together with saints of yesterday and today. We will find examples of imperfect people who went forward with faith and allowed God to work through them to accomplish His work. In doing so, we will see better how He can work through imperfect people like you and me. I promise you that studying the history of the church can deepen your faith and desire to live the gospel more fully. This face-to-face broadcast is to inform and answer questions with an emphasis on church history. We thank you for the thousands of questions we have received over the past months. We will answer as many as we can to give our perspective on the history of the church. Time will permit us to answer only a few of your questions, but we invite you to find answers in the New Saints book and in other credible sources. One of the places you can find answers is Institute, where you will find dedicated teachers who care about you and want to help you deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. My dear friends, the story of the Restoration is a story of sacrifice, 
determination, and faith. And we are all a part of this restoration, a part of church history. Each of us has a mission to accomplish in this life that will help the gospel to fill the earth. As we learn more about the saints of the past, we will be strengthened in fulfilling our own mission as a daughter or son of God. Now, before we begin with the questions, let me introduce my associates who are both distinguished historians, Sister Kate Holbrook and Brother Matt Groh. We have decided that I will refer to them as Kate and Matt. I suggested that they call me Quentin or Q, as my grandchildren do. <laughs> they have respectfully replied, we will call you Elder Cook. <laughs> now, it would be correct in a non-church setting to call each of them doctor. Kate has a master's degree from Harvard University and a PhD from Boston University. Matt has both a master's degree and doctorate degree from Notre Dame University. They are great historians, faithful Latter-day Saints, and truly delightful people. Thank you for being with me on this. With that, let's begin some questions. <laughs> uh, so Radio Free Mormon, I'm, I'm stammering here because here's my struggle, and I think as you kind of put the outline out for this, these are things that you touched on as well, so I hope I'm not stealing some of your thunder, but when they keep throughout this entire thing, you're going to sense from them a double message. One is going to be that history is faith promoting and our history can withstand scrutiny. And on the other hand, we don't really want to talk about our history because we know it's not faith promoting and it can't withstand scrutiny. And it seems like he set this up when he says that the by us as Latter-day Saints, knowing our history, it's going to help us live the gospel. The other thing I notice is that this entire face-to-face -face, uh, conversation between uh, Sister Holbrook, Brother Grow, and, uh, and Elder Cook is an advertisement for this new saints book. And they're obviously talking to the, the youth of the church and trying to get them to swallow this new narrative. Meanwhile, it feels like the older people will be somewhat kind of left alone to just die with the old story that they were told. Uh, he talks about the idea that our history has been misunderstood, overlooked, and even purposely misrepresented. And what he doesn't do, RFM, is look the camera in the eye with complete honesty and tell the audience who was most guilty for misunderstanding our history, most guilty for overlooking our history, and most guilty for ev uh, even purposely misrepresenting our history, that, my friend, would be the LDS Church, who, when I look across all of the anti-Mormon productions that are out there, uh, Mormonism Unveiled, Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History, when I look out across, across the plethora of resources available to learn about Mormonism from outside sources, and then look inside at the church itself, when I ask myself who has been the worst at representing uh, Mormon history fully, transparently, vulnerably, and accurately, the worst entity has been the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Quentin Cook and everybody else always likes to point the finger outside and say, it wasn't us. We always tried to do the right thing. It was those guys. 
Uh, and the reality is that only works if there's a mirror in front of them. I think that's true. I want to say first off about the whole uh, face-to-face is that it is unprecedented in my experience that a face-to-face or any kind of presentation is being given by a general authority or with a general authority. He's sort of a side character in this, but that deals with questions about church history. And I think that is remarkable. First off, I want to give credit to the church for doing this. I think this is something that's long past due. On the other hand, I also have to say that it seems that really they're not going to answer a whole lot of questions about church history, and they are definitely going to put spin on history, and they're going to even comparelessly close to not telling the truth about some things. And this is what you refer to with Elder Cook's comment when he says that some people have even purposely misrepresented stories of the past to sow doubt. Now, the first thing that came to mind when I heard him say that was, yes, and some people have even purposely misrepresented stories of the past to sow faith. That's what I think the church does. The church purposely misrepresents stories of the past to sow faith. It also reminded me of something that Elder Oaks had said back in the 1980s when he said that the church has no responsibility to be balanced in its presentation of the history. So I think that's a tacit acknowledgement on Elder Oaks' part, who is now a member of the First Presidency currently in the LDS Church. The other thing I noticed about that is this whole idea about misrepresenting stories. The idea is that you have to misrepresent the stories in church history in order to sow doubt, when really that's not what the church is worried about. The church really is not worried about the misrepresenting of the stories of the past because it's the correct presentation of the stories of the past that end up sowing doubt. They don't have to be misrepresented. When I joined the church back in the 1970s, the acknowledged antichrists to the LDS church were Gerald and Sandra Tanner, who put out a lot of anti-Mormon literature. And the church denounced it as lies. We should not read it because it was full of lies. It was full of these misrepresentations that sowed doubt. Well, we find out now with the release of the essays that actually what the Tanners were doing as anti-Mormons were correctly presenting the stories of the past in church history. And it was the church who was misrepresenting those stories all along. And now with the essays, the church has admitted that the anti-Mormon lies of yesterday are now the church-acknowledged truths of today. Yeah, and so with that, let's go to question number one. Awesome. Thank you so much for those remarks. <laughs> to get started, Elder Cook, would it be all right if we started with a bit of a tough question? Well, please. <laughs> awesome. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. So some young adults feel that the church has been hiding information regarding historical events. And so this question coming from Idaho sums them up. Why isn't the church more open about some of the controversial things that happened at the start of the church? I have learned a lot of new things I did not know before, and I've been a member of the church my whole life. Some of the things I've learned have caused me to struggle with doubts and have no clear idea on where to get real answers. Thank you for that question. Uh, Both Kate and Matt, you have uh, thought pretty deeply about this in your role as historians. Uh, Kate, would you like to start off? Thank you. 
That's an important question. And it might help if I start by talking about my own experience, learning about issues in church history that some people find surprising. I was raised an only child by my mother and my grandmother. And when I was four years old, they worked at the Beehive House, Brigham Young's old house. And they taught me all about Brigham Young, and they taught me that he had many wives. Uh, About 10 years later, my grandma read a book about Joseph and Emma Smith. And I learned while she was reading that book and talking about it that Joseph Smith had many wives. Uh, I didn't learn about seer stones, which Joseph Smith used to help translate the Book of Mormon until I was an adult. And I was interested in church history and talking with people about it and reading with people about it. And, and I, what I'm trying to get across is the church did not hide information from me, but the, but the historical information was not emphasized to me. When I was two years old, in 1974, there was an, a friend article about seer stones, but I, I was two years old. I didn't, I didn't read that article. Uh, what I did learn in my Sunday meetings and my seminary classes was what the main work of the church is. I learned to repent. I learned to bring my life into harmony with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I learned how to establish a relationship with my Father in heaven. And these are the things in my life that I hold most dear. I also know that for some people, like the person who asked that question, it can be really painful to learn about something that you thought you should have known and that you didn't know. That's why Matt and I do the work we do. I hope that that experience for people will now become a part of the past because we have the book, Saints, that portrays a full history for people. And we also have gospel topics, essays, and other information online. Thank you. Matt, would you like to comment? Sure. I mean, I I think Kate's story really effectively demonstrates this dynamic where information has been available, especially to those with an interest, and sometimes in church publications, but some of the more challenging information hasn't been emphasized, hasn't been taught or discuss much, sometimes because it feels uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. and sometimes uh, because the main purpose of church meetings is to preach preach the gospel of salvation. Another thing to keep in mind is that on many of these topics, we know a lot more now than did people 30 or 40, 50 years ago. So sometimes what seems that the church has hidden information is simply a fact, a result of the fact that we know more now. But we do live in a new reality of the information age when challenging information on church history can appear in social media feeds of members all around the world. And so we have a heightened responsibility now to help members find good answers to their questions within the household of faith. By that I mean within church settings, within seminaries and institutes, within our families. And Kate mentioned that the church is trying to do a lot of that in saints. I would also mention the Joseph Smith Papers, which is this massive historical project to publish all of Joseph's journals and letters and other documents. It's all available online, josephsmithpapers.org, and it already fills 17 thick books. (laughs) In addition, um, the Gospel Topics essays, which Kate mentioned, confront directly many of these challenging doctrinal and historical questions. The message to me of this openness is that the history of the church can withstand scrutiny. We don't need to be afraid of it. It's inspiring. Sometimes we'll have questions, but there are good answers. I've worked for the church for the last eight years writing history. I've seen the attitude of our general authorities 
with relationship to the history. The conversations are not about how do we hide history, how do we censor history, but the conversations are about how do we make history accessible, available, and understandable. Thank you, Matt. Uh, I think that's a great answer. Uh, I think looking back, uh, it's always been hard to achieve a balance between teaching those things that are essential, gospel doctrine, uh, those things that will lead people back to exaltation. And uh, so we need to get a balance between that and making sure that uh, there are answers to questions that are of concern to some people. Uh, it's been mentioned that, uh, that we have these uh, wonderful new resources coming forth. I want to assure you, uh, in the over 22 years that I've been a general authority, that the desire of the brethren has been to be uh, as uh, transparent as possible, both in terms of church history and in doctrine. And uh, we feel like that the effort to put forth these, these new resources, uh, particularly the Joseph Smith papers, the gospel, doc, the, the gospel topic essays, and now saints uh, are a wonderful way of having people get into things that uh, are true and are in context and uh, will help you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ in a credible way. So thank you very much. Well, they start off with a very good question, and I want to give them credit for addressing this question, for addressing it first off, and I think the person who asked it asked it in a very pointed and clear way about why is it that the church is hiding its history. It's not talking about certain aspects of its history. And this person who wrote the question says they found out some things they didn't know before and they're troubled by it. So I think that was very important. Um, on the other hand, I think the answer is perhaps not so good. And it is kind of funny because uh, once again, with this face-to-face, -face, they're trying to give the impression that it's not scripted. And Everybody knows what the first question is going to be for crying out loud. And Spencer, the young single adult who's asking the question on behalf of this person who wrote it in, says to Elder Cook, is it okay if we start off with kind of a tough question? And Elder Cook kind of laughs and says, oh, sure. Like, you know, they don't know what the question is going to be. And then uh, Spencer asks it and Elder Cook immediately hands it off to Sister Holbrook. You want to take this one? So everybody's ready. They have their points in mind. They're ready to talk. They're ready to make their points. And Sister Holbrook starts talking about um, how it was that she knew about Brigham Young and his polygamy from an early age, because when she was four, she worked with a mom and her grandmother in the Beehive House. Well, look, she probably knew it from a very young age, but Brigham Young practicing polygamy is not something that's a big secret. It's not a big secret in the church. It's not a big secret out of the church. And one of the funny things that I found out is, is that Joseph Smith practicing polygamy is typically not taught in the church. Now, I can't speak about today, but I know that my daughter, who is now 30 years old, I talked to her not too many years ago because I wanted to get a feeling from her about whether she knew that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. She grew up in the church. She went to all of the Sunday school classes, all the young women classes, all of all the classes in church, including seminary. And I asked her about that and uh, she was surprised. She actually did not know that Joseph Smith had practiced polygamy after her entire youth spent growing up in the church. 
So that was revealing to me. And this uh, lady, Sister Holbrook, now says that she found out about Joseph Smith practicing polygamy from a book that her mother read 10 years after she found out about Brigham Young practicing polygamy. So this was very interesting to me because this entire uh, discussion, many of the comments here and elsewhere talk about we need credible sources of history and Elder Cook and Matt Groh try and caution the audience away from other sources other than officially approved church sources. And they are pushing the essays, which I think is a good thing. I'll tell you, the essays got more of a mention in this face-to-face than I've ever heard them mentioned before. I don't know that they actually talked about how to find them once again, but they got a lot of mention. And the Saints book as well got a lot of mention. And so these are the main things that are being pushed as far as credible sources. But when I went back and did the math, I thought, well, what is this book that Kate Holbrook is talking about her mom reading when she, Kate, was 14 years old and it talks about Joseph Smith and his practice of polygamy? Well, I did the math because Kate gives us enough details and facts in her answer to figure out that she was born in 1972. So she was four in 1970. Six, that's when she was working with her mom and her grandmother in the beehive house. Ten years later is 1986. And that's when her mom is reading this book about Joseph Smith practicing polygamy. Well, it's pretty easy to figure out what book it is that her mom was reading, even though Kate Holbrook does not want to mention the title. The title of the book her mom was reading in 1986 was Mormon Enigma. And that is a book that is probably familiar to most of our listeners. But Mormon Enigma was published in 1986. It was one of the first of its kind books. It was written by Linda King Newell and Valine Tippett's Avery. And interestingly, first off, is the fact that this is not from a credible source. The entire presentation would label this as not a credible source of history. It is not church approved. It is not something that members should be going to according to the people in this presentation. And yet it is because Sister Holbrook's mother read it in 1986 that Sister Holbrook found out about Joseph Smith practicing polygamy. So she found out about it through a non-church approved source. And making it more interesting is that in this whole context about the church not hiding its history is the fact that this very book, Mormon Enigma, which complete title is Mormon Enigma, Emma Hale Smith, Prophet's Wife, Elect Lady, Polygamy's Foe, F-O-E, that's the entire title of the book. When it came out in 1994, the authors were refused any opportunity by the church to talk about their research or the book in church meetings. Now, this is just uh, really funny when you find out what the backstory is of the book that Sister Holbrook is talking about. So in the context, they're talking about how the church doesn't hide its history, and yet she is referencing finding out about Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy in a book that was written in 1986, Mormon Enigma, that the church said the authors cannot talk about anything in their book in church meetings. So I find that highly ironic. I'll, I'll say a couple of things here, and you're pointing to a big one, which is to, to tell people we didn't emphasize, like we never hid the history, we just didn't emphasize it. There's this idea 
that the church is hiding something that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. That infuriates me, RFM. I mean, I get like really deeply angry when I hear that because I was as well read as anybody else in my ward or stake. Uh, I read everything I could get my hands on. And it became pretty clear pretty quickly that when it comes to telling members, for instance, that the Egyptian papyri that is proposed to be the book of Abraham doesn't translate into that, there's not one drop of that conversation in um, in the curriculum that members are learning on Sunday. Now, yes, they can go back and find a Hugh Nibley article uh, from some previous ensign, or as you pointed out, uh, as you point out here when we get to it, I mean, it's in the outline, I should say, but when you point out later on here when we talk about the Seer Stone, this 1974 Friend magazine, which Kate references uh, this idea of reading a little bit as she was growing up and... So as Kate points out, like, I'm two years old, I didn't read something. And so it's not fair to pretend that you are covering all your bases when you do two things. One is that you don't cover all your bases. Again, for instance, there's not a single mention. I don't think anywhere in any official publication outside of Family Search that Joseph Smith is a polygamist. If you go to church every Sunday for the three hours, and you attend all of your meetings, uh, training meetings, regional conferences, state conferences, ward conferences, you go to Sunday school every week, you, prior to maybe five, six, ten years ago, you would have never been told that Joseph Smith was a polygamist. You would have never been told that the Egyptian papyri does not translate into the book of Abraham. You would have never been told little things like we love in Mormonism to tell the story of Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner, who's at the print shop where the book of commandments is being printed and a mob comes and they terrorize the print shop and, and destroy it. And these book of commandment papers go flying all over the place and sister uh, Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner, uh, takes those papers and puts them in her blouse and saves them. And it's the reason we have so much of this documentation from the Book of Commandments. We love to tell that story. And yet Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner is actually Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner Smith because she's a plural wife of Joseph Smith. What church in telling its history tells you the uh, subtle stories, these these tangent stories of its characters within its history, and then fails to tell you that that same individual was a wife of your founder. Like that seems to be an important detail and Mormonism has intentionally left that out. It hasn't been part of the story. Uh, we don't talk about Fanny Alger. We don't talk about uh, Helen Mar Kimball. If you go do a search in official publications, you don't find anything. So when Kate says, look, we didn't hide it, we just didn't emphasize it. That that's not true. You didn't talk about any of these problematic areas. The secondary thing is when you say you don't emphasize it, to put one article with a subtle reference 
in a children's periodical of the church in 1974 and then be like, we did talk about it. See, there was that one article. Nobody in the entire church who's not a scholar, amateur or professional, or a historian, amateur or professional, is even going to be aware of that. Unless you are on ex-Mormon Reddit, unless you are in one of these discussion boards or forums where these uh, sticky issues are discussed, you'd never be aware that there was a reference in a 1974 Friend magazine. To put it in that and then to say, look, we talked about it, is, is, is to me abusive. Um, and I guess that's my two cents. Well, thank you, because I want to make three quick points about that. Uh, the first thing is that I agree with you. What Sister Kate Holbrook, though she sounds like a very nice person, what she ends up doing with her language is victim blaming. She is blaming the members of the church for not knowing the history of the church. The history of the church, according to her, was not hidden by the church. And she gives that example of the, the Friend magazine, once again, a children's magazine in the LDS church from 1974, which she did not read because she was two years old. But she also admits... By the, by the way, let me stop you. I, I'm, I turned 40 years old this Friday. It's, uh, it's September 13th, so tomorrow's my birthday. Happy I turned 40 birthday, years old. Bill. Thank you. I was born in 1978. Here I am, 40 years old, and that magazine was printed four years before I was born, and the church wants to pretend like, hey, we covered it. It wasn't even available. Even if I was a member of the church from, from the day of my birth, I would have never had access to that magazine in real time in any way that would have been beneficial to know that information. Right. And here she is. She actually admits that, um, you know, she didn't read the article. She was two years old. It's kind of a bit of a laugh line. But she says she didn't know about the seer stones until she was an adult and interested in church history and actually studying church history. So this is something where she basically tacitly admits, yeah, there was a mention over here in this children's magazine in 1974, but she didn't know about seer stones until she's actually seriously studying church history. So that's how well it was kept hidden by the church. Now, once again, she says it's not hiding it. The church is not emphasizing it. But before I get to that next point, let me underscore once again what I said. It is victim blaming. It is the old attack is, is the old tactic of saying the members of the church are the ones at fault for not knowing the history of the church. The church didn't hide it. The members are at fault for not knowing it. Even though members of the LDS church who are faithful go to church three hours a week, every week of the year, they have general conference twice a year, which is 10 hours of listening to church leaders talk the youth of the church go to early morning seminary, or if they're in Utah, they do it during their school year, which is for 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. They have a class that they go to for one hour or 50 minutes. It's a full class for four years. And yet, none of that stuff is ever talked about. So it's not like the church doesn't have the opportunity. We just, you know, we're restricted in our time. We just don't have enough time to talk about these things. They have plenty of time. They talk about what they want to talk about ad infinitum until the blood shoots out of the eyes or the eyes roll back up in the head. But they never get around to talking about these things in their church meetings, which is why people are surprised and sometimes 
disappointed and concerned when they find out things about church history from non-church sources that they've never heard about before. Now, the next thing I wanted to say uh, after the victim blaming that's going on is the fact she says the church didn't emphasize certain things. Well, that's really not true. Let's look at the seer stone since she brings it up, okay? She says the church did not emphasize Joseph Smith's use of the seer stone in translating the Book of Mormon. That's really the full, complete sentence of what it is she's getting at, though she doesn't want to be as clear as that. The fact is that it's not simply the church not emphasizing that story. What the church is doing is emphasizing a completely different story of Joseph Smith not using a seer stone, but looking at the plates and translating them by the gift and power of God. There's no use of a seer stone in the lesson manuals that have been used for decades. There's no artwork showing Joseph Smith using a seer stone in a hat. So it's not just that the church hasn't mentioned the seer stone. The church has been busy emphasizing over and over and over and over again a false and unhistorical method of translation that Joseph Smith did not use to translate the Book of Mormon. Can I interrupt you one more time? Please. There's also a counter narrative, which is Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie telling all of the church membership through their writings that seer stones were evil and a tool of the devil. Uh, right. And that is one of the funny things, isn't it? Because actually at this time in Joseph Smith's history, using these stones was called, it was a peep stone, right? It's a peep stone. But when Joseph Smith has a stone that he uses, it's a seer stone. But when Hiram Page does the same thing with another rock, that's a peep stone. So there's almost this sort of different change in terminology to talk about. This one's really true, but that one's not. Seer stone good, peep stone bad. The final thing I wanted to say, which I think really throws this into sharp relief, is that in spite of the message trying to be given that the church has told its true history, and like Elder Cook says, we've been a trans as transparent as we know how to be. For some reason, whenever I hear him say that, or Elder Ballard say that, I hear in my mind President Nixon saying, I am not a crook. Trust us wherever you are in the world, and you share this message with anyone else who raises the question about the church not being transparent. We're as transparent as we know how to be in telling the truth. We have to do that. That's the Lord's way. We're as, transpar we're as transparent as we know how to be. But the truth of the matter is, for anybody who hasn't been hiding under a rock for the last several decades in this church, particularly in the 1980s and 90s, is that not only has the church not been telling the truth about its history, it has been busy excommunicating the people who did tell the truth about the church's history. Yeah, I... Um whether it's Juanita Brooks and how she was treated for talking about Mountain Meadows Massacre. I was uh, just reading something about uh, Levina Fielding Anderson. She, she received so much uh, distress from the institution for the things that she wrote about. Um, my heart breaks for the, for the, when I look at our history, here's another thing I think that needs to be at least said is People like Richard Bushman, uh, Terrell Givens, uh, Patrick Mason, who's one of the younger guys up and coming. But even if we go back in time and we look at our faithful scholars, our faithful scholars up until Rough Stone Rolling, 
seemed to have felt some sort of pressure to not talk about the sticky issues. It feels like our historians were not naive, like in their head, they knew the data. Uh, but for some reason, there are no faithful books that tell the story up until Rough Stone Rolling, which I think came out in like 2002 or so. Um, for some reason, our scholars and our historians, if we go back to, uh, to Leonard Arrington, uh, we can see from the conversations that are now public that he and his staff were under incredible pressure to not publish uh, truthful information that was not going to be faith-promoting, that was going to cause faith issues with its membership. This church has always put its thumb down on the, its, 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 uh, its historians to pressure them into not talking about the problematic stuff. Uh, I don't think it's fair at all. In fact, I want to say it's dishonest, deeply deceptive and dishonest to pretend anything otherwise. And so when church leaders fail to look me in the eye and say, you're right, there have been times in the past where our leaders were scared of our history and they were, they were not comfortable enough to let our historians talk openly about it. Now that's the truth. When your leader can't look you in the eye and say that, then I've already lost trust with that leader. I've already lost the ability to take seriously anything else that person says. Yes. And I don't want to just hammer on uh, Kate Holbrook. I also want to hammer a little bit on Matt Groh. And actually, this is more of a compliment to Matt Groh than anything else, because he comes perilously close to telling the truth in what he's talking about. Because in his comments, he talks about the fact that the church is becoming more transparent and he actually says the church has a responsibility to tell the truth about its history and that the church's responsibility to do that has become heightened because of the internet now this is an interesting uh, statement he makes the church has a heightened responsibility to tell the truth and be transparent because of the internet what he means is the church now has more of a responsibility to be transparent and honest because people can find out the correct information on the internet through non-church approved sources. This is a very strange way of putting it. He's saying that the responsibility of the church to be honest increases to the degree that other people can find out the truth anyway. Yeah. Now that you say that, when, when you tell somebody, look, we've entered a day and an age where people can now learn the dirty details of the church. And so now that people can learn the dirty details of the church, we now feel a responsibility to tell people a more full story that includes our whitewashing of those dirty details. You're, that already talks about the dishonesty you're, you're, that, that institution is currently working within. It, it may be said with soft words. It may be said with a kind tone. It may be said with, with praise to Jesus along the way. But the reality is there is still deceptiveness and dishonesty that is underneath those words. And again, that just infuriates me. Yeah. And what he's basically admitting is the church will tell you only as much as you're going to find out elsewhere. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those, I think, would be the ones we avoid. 
Right, which is so honest and transparent, right? It's totally honest and transparent. It's like your ethics depends upon uh, your your ethical responsibility to be honest as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints depends on how much people can find out without your telling them the truth. Right now, we have all this sex abuse stuff going on, not only within our own church, but within the Catholic Church. So put it in terms of an analogy, maybe taking yourself out of Mormonism and looking at it from uh, a distant view, looking over at Catholicism. If the Pope were to come out, which is pretty much what they've done, if the Pope were to come out and say, look, we've been hiding sex abuse this whole time, but now that we live in an information age where people are most likely to find out that we did that, we now have a responsibility to protect victims and to begin to deal with this sex abuse in the right ways. We would all be offended and appalled, like great step Pope, but what you did was admit that there was corruption all the way back. And that's what's being said here. Yeah, so that's what I mean. I got to give Matt Groh credit for telling the truth, but I'm not sure that he understood all, everything he was admitting to when he said it. No, it's it's kind of similar to our analysis of Stephen Harper. And again, I love Stephen, but Stephen said a lot of things that I don't think if 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 he sat down and said like, what do these words really mean? What am I trying not to say? And the fact that most of us on this side of it are able to easily pick those things apart. Uh, I don't think Stephen quite knew what he was getting into either. No. And it's funny because it was a September 9th that this face-to-face devotional was given with Matt Grow up there as well as the other two. But it was September 4th that they had the public uh, press conference and announcement of this new book, Saints. And they have a bunch of people who are talking. They have other people who are not talking. One of the people who talks is Matt Grow, And one of the people who's not talking and sitting there is Steve Harper. Did you see his picture there? And I just thought, oh my gosh, this was supposed to be like a huge deal for him, a time of celebration. This is a big deal having this book published that he worked so hard on. And here we are, you know, raining on his parade and ragging on him for his crazy interview. The other thing, the other thing was, is that when... Uh, honestly, we'll get to the next question here in a second. Uh, but the other thing was, I thought it was so funny that Matt Groh was on there saying, there may be some questions, but there are good answers. You remember when Matt Groh said that? There's always good answers, but notice they never have enough time to get into them. <laughs> well, well, they don't, but I think that he needs to talk to um, Steve Harper because based on what Steve Harper said in his interview, he's desperately in search for good answers. Right. He doesn't have a testimony of church history because there's only problems there. I know. These guys need to talk more. Yeah. And, and we'll find out here in a little bit when Matt Groh makes a reference uh, to a quote that was used by Stephen Harper that maybe they are doing a little more talking than we give them credit for. But let's uh, yes. let's sneak over here to, to question number two. All right. Uh, we have a question from California. Anthony asks, how has, as the church becomes more global, how will the new history of the church include members from around the world? And what kinds of stories do we have to look forward to in the upcoming volumes of the new church history? <clears throat> that's, a, that's a wonderful question as well. And, uh, and you're, you're going to find that in church history, even in this early history, that there are stories of people from other places than uh, just in North America but uh, just, just think that uh, Joseph Smith uh, in 1834 in Kirtland, in a schoolroom that was 14 by 14, he had all the priesthood holders that were in Kirtland, and they fit in that room. And he said to them uh, that they really didn't have a sense of the destiny of the church. He says, you have no more sense of that than a babe in a mother's lap. 
And then he went on to say, the destiny of this church is to fill North America and South America and the entire world. And uh, we're seeing that. And I think my reference to 600,000 of you going on missions, many in North and South America and across the world is, is, uh, is evidence of that. Missionaries went out almost immediately. They not only went to Canada and Great Britain, but they went to Germany. They went to the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. They went to the Pacific Islands. One of my favorite accounts in here is the story of Addison Pratt uh, going to the South Pacific. He was sent down to the South Pacific. They called it the Society Islands. It's French Polynesia now. And he was down there in the Austral Islands. He was successful. Uh, he had about 60 baptisms. And, and towards the, the end of his mission, when everybody was leaving Nauvoo, his wife Louisa, instead of going to Utah, she joined him down in French Polynesia with their four daughters. My wife Mary and I, in, in a period when I was president of the Pacific Islands, had a chance to visit those Austral Islands where Addison Pratt had taught. And one of the most remarkable experiences I've ever had was to have a, a woman that, that was about 18 or 19 give a talk, and she said, I am a seventh generation member of the church. Addison Pratt had baptized her distant uh, ancestor before the Nauvoo Temple was complete, before the saints uh, went to Utah. So we want you to know wherever you are in this world, uh, whatever lineage you come from, you're important, you're part of the church history. Uh, we very much need you and want you and you will bless people's lives. Did you notice how much information, listeners, did you catch that? How much information he had on this fluff question? So. RFM pointed out earlier, there's no doubt they knew the questions ahead of time. And while there is some, uh, the way in which they create the conversation is to kind of imply that they're taking some of these questions off the cuff at least. And the reality is they know every one of these questions ahead of time. Here's Elder Cook, and he's asked this question about will the book saints include history of people beyond just North America? And look at all the data he could give. Now, throughout this interview, there's the idea that there's tough questions out there. We have good answers, but we don't have time to cover any of that today. But look how much time he spent telling you details of the stories within the book Saints. If he would have spent that much time and that much data and detail in telling you about the Book of Abraham issue, then, then like, why couldn't he? And it's not because we don't have time. It's because we know that the history is problematic. So here's just a fluff question. Um, and notice, uh, as you pointed out, RFM, as the audio was playing, as you and I were talking behind the scenes, uh, notice that Elder Cook is the one who tackles the fluff question. And then when the tough questions come, he points right over to the historians. It, it just, when you start to see the mechanisms that are being used here, um, you know you're being lied to when people tell you there's not enough time. I've spent a lifetime, it feels like now at least at this point, I've spent a lifetime on social media trying to raise awareness of the troublesome issues and what they mean for how we have to change our church narrative. And when I do that, apologists will come in and they'll throw out something. And the moment I challenge them with the next logical question, suddenly they don't have enough time. They have to go. They've got something else to do, somewhere to be, someplace to go but they don't ever want to engage on the issues. And when these guys tell you they don't have time, 
to get into the details, but they do have time to tell you lots of details of things that are not problematic, then you can know for a fact that you're being tricked into not um, knowing that the details is where the devil is, right? The devil's in the details. That's where the problems are. And the fact that we never want to talk about them is when you understand it is an indication that we don't want to go there because there's nothing faith, faith promoting in the details. Yes, I like what you said. Uh, the devil is in the details. And I also like a quote from Don Quixote, which is sort of similar. The devil hides behind the cross. So let's go to, uh, to question number three. So our next question, um, Brother Grow, you mentioned that we live in an information age. And so this next question pertains to that. Because sometimes, because we're in an information age and we have so much at our fingertips, it's hard to know what to believe and what to trust. So Tinica from Utah asked, We live in such a world where Google has answers to to every question, but is there a way to search church history to find reliable answers and stories? And Andrew from Paraguay added, Where are some good online resources to search for doctrinally correct answers beyond the search bar on LDS.org? Matt, this is right down your alley. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I do think that those are terrific questions because we all know that the challenge in the information age is not to find answers, we're surrounded by answers, but it's to discern between good answers and bad inf- answers, good information and bad information. And that's really one of the central tasks of a historian. So let me tell you a little bit about what I do uh, in my work. There are so many historical discussions online about our history. And most of these discussions produce a lot more heat than light. So if your source of information includes a lot of emojis and exclamation points, <laughs> maybe let's, tr- let's start somewhere else. <laughs> Be careful about sources of information that just seek to tear people down. Look instead for sources of information that are based on the records left by the people themselves and that seek to be fair to them. It is really easy to play gotcha with the past, to pull a quotation or an incident out of its context and make it look alarming. As a historian, I tried to follow the advice of a British novelist, and I love this. He said, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And to me, that means that when we visit the past, we don't want to be an ugly tourist. We want to try to understand the people within their own context and their own culture. We want to be patient with what we perceive as their faults. We want to be humble about the limits of our own knowledge. And we want to have a spirit of charity about the past. Those of us like like Kate and myself who write history for the church... We feel a great responsibility to write history that is honest, that is accurate, that helps us understand the past. So there's a lot of great information out there about Latter-day Saint history. Look for the credible sources. And I'm, I'm going to take just a minute to tell you about a few other things that the church has done that, that you might be interested in. So along with the Saints volume that was published this week was published online about 100 new online essays called Church History Topics. They tell you more about the events and themes and people and places in Saints. And they even point you to further reading things not published by the church that can help you increase your understanding. 
Another area of interest that the church has published a lot on recently is women's history. So the church has published a documentary history of the Relief Society in a book called At the Pulpit, which is a book of women's sermons throughout church history. Latter-day Saint women's history is not just for women. It's for all Latter-day Saints. We are stronger as a people, stronger as a culture, when we hear the voices and learn from the experiences of women in the past. Another thing that we've tried to do more of that Elder Cook mentioned is tell the stories of the global church. I love the stories about how the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. And you can find a lot of these stories on history.lds.org. You can watch videos and read stories about the saints in Ghana and in South Africa and in Brazil and in the Netherlands and Germany and so on and so forth. And a great deal of this information might be sitting in your pocket. Hopefully they're in your pockets. <laughs> 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 go, to the, go to the church history section of the Gospel Library app maybe sometime this week. Maybe download Saints and look at the other resources. I think that you will enjoy them, be inspired, and learn more about the history of this church. Thank you very much, uh, Matt. Uh, let me just add a, a, a few words to that. Uh, we know that uh, your generation is very, very good at using the Internet. And in many areas, maybe even most areas, there really are good and wonderful answers that you can obtain. But in a couple of areas, uh, that isn't always the case. Uh, politics and religion would be too true, too, where it wouldn't be true, uh, where often there is misinformation and uh, where there is an effort to distort things. And so... Uh, you need to, to go to credible sources. And that was one of the great purposes for having uh, the saints be issued is to accomplish that. Now, the saints <clears throat> is written in, as a narrative history. It reads like a novel. Uh, but don't be fooled by that. Everything in it is backed up by facts. If it says it was raining, it was raining. If it says that uh, uh, Parley Pratt was angry with the prophet Joseph, he was. If it says Parley Pratt asked for forgiveness and became a great leader, he did. And so uh, this book is true accounts, and in the back of it, uh, uh, there are at least 71 pages of endnotes that you can go to that will take you to other sources, that will take you into the Joseph Smith papers or other sources, some of which are in the, in the church archives. So. This is a book that you can use to answer questions, but if you read it and you go through it, you're going to find that it builds your faith and helps you understand our ancestors and what they accomplished. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that explanation. Okay. Well, this reminds me of what Elder Ballard said in the face-to-face -face from last November about questions about the church. Just trust us. That's the answer. If you want credible information about the church, just trust us. We've got a great book. We just published it. It's called Saints. There are even essays on the church website. There's other things that the church has published. Just trust us. And I don't have so much to say really about what um, Matt Groh said. I think he tried to frame it as good as he possibly could. Um, I could pick a little bit at what he said, but really it's basically what Elder Cook said 
which he says, politics and religion, if you're on the internet, you can get good answers to pretty much anything except for a couple subjects, politics and religion. And what, of course, he's talking about here is Mormonism, because that's on the religion side. And he says there's often misinformation and people distort things. Well, that's probably true. But once again, what he's doing is he's signaling internet research about Mormonism dangerous. There's misinformation. There's distortion. So if you find things that are troubling, it's misinformation and distortion. And really, you shouldn't even go in there in the first place. Just stick to these safe, church-produced, church-correlated sources of information. If I ask what is the greatest source of misinformation about Mormonism, it's the correlated uh, curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So here's the issue. Um, First, uh, Elder Cook deflects in the very beginning of that. He sounds like a politician who doesn't want to field a tough question. He chuckles and tells you that Matt knows more about this stuff than he does. Then he turns the time over to the church historian. Um, Matt talks about there's these easy gotchas. Like, yeah, we can always pick out a piece of history and we can show that a leader made a mistake and we can show that things get messy. Here's my struggle, and and I'll try to be concise. These three folks here, as you point out, want to tell you that it gets confusing out there, so just read the Saints book and follow the references that it shares if you want to chase things a little further. We'll provide all the sources that we we are telling you are credible. And then he relates it to politics. Now, here's the problem. That's not how I live my life. I don't go into politics and Glenn Beck tells me that only his perspective is the truth and only to trust his sources and then go like, yeah, that makes sense. I'll just listen to Glenn Beck and trust all the sources that Glenn Beck shares or Rush Limbaugh shares. And I'm just going to go with whatever they say. That's not reality. Reality is that I take an issue, whatever issue it is that I'm confused on or I feel like I want to know more, and I read both sides. So I'm a Republican, and I used to be an avid listener of Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh. As I went into my faith crisis and I realized that the world is way more complex and messy than I thought it was, I stopped assuming that those uh, voices had all the truth. And I started looking all over the place for information and testing the assumptions that I had made about various issues within my political beliefs. So what I'm saying is that we all now get inside our heads, we all now get that it is reasonable and rational, it is most efficient and effective when you are struggling with an issue or thinking about an issue or wondering about an issue, to go and gather all the information you can on all sides, knowing that there's going to be some misrepresentation, some deceptiveness, some false use of data and statistics, that's simply going to happen no matter what issue you study and what side you study it from. The only way to come to an intelligent perspective about an issue is to sort through all of that on both sides. And then to ask yourself when you've accumulated all the data to set off to the side those things that you can sense is being told inaccurately 
and to then weigh the things that you find to be credible, reasonable, rational extrapolations from the data and and then coming to what you find to be the most reasonable, rational conclusion on that issue. That, we all get it. Like every one of us in our heads right now are going like, you're right. That's what we do. We go to college. We go to high school. We, we go into our jobs and we're, and we're taught to like learn the best ways to do these things. And the only way to do it is to gather information on both sides. That's not what these guys are telling you. They're saying, trust us. We're right. And trust the sources we give you because those sources will point to the fact that we're right. And that's not how we make educated decisions anywhere else in our life. And so stop telling yourself that this is the appropriate way to do things. It's not. And anybody who tells you it is, is simply trying to get you to see only their side of an issue. Um, And that's not honest. Can I tell you my little Glenn Beck story? I'd love to hear it. It has a little bit to do with what you're talking about and what we're talking about here. But I used to listen to Glenn Beck with some regularity. This is a number of years ago. And um, he had two other people on his show. And it was very entertaining. It was very, I laughed a lot. But he talked a lot, of course, about politics. And he talked very authoritatively about politics. And he talked in such a way that it sounded like he sure knew what he was talking about when he talked about politics. Well, he also is a Mormon, as most people probably know. He's made no secret about it. And one time on his radio show, he's talking about Joseph Smith, and he's talking as a Mormon. And he goes on for like 10 minutes about church history and describing certain narratives in church history. So now all of a sudden he goes from talking about politics where... You know, I may just have a peripheral knowledge and not really able to back check what he's talking about, just taking his word for it. Then he goes to talking about a subject that I know backward and forward, Mormonism. And I was astonished that he didn't know anything about Mormonism. In other words, he knew something, but he knew enough to get item after item after item completely wrong. And I'm not talking about wrong in the sense of, You have to be a church historian to know it's wrong, or you have to be a Bill Real to know it's wrong. I mean, you have to be like a primary kid in church to know it's wrong. That's how bad his recitation of facts was when it came to Mormon history. And yet, even though I knew he was wrong time after time about Mormon history, he was still speaking in the same authoritative voice that he used when he talked about politics. And of course, I thought to myself, well... If he speaks authoritatively when I know he's wrong, what should I think when he speaks authoritatively when I don't know if he's wrong? And so that was kind of when Glenn Beck and I parted ways. You know, as you were saying that, it reminds me of LDS leadership. Look at all the things our leaders have said authoritatively and been dead wrong on. And so now when there's any like, like I don't know if they're right or wrong. It, I don't know if there's a way to prove they're right or Like maybe we ought to test all of those things. And again, you can't test those things unless you're informed on both sides of an issue. I also just want to note, because we were chuckling, um, Matt Groh uses the same quote that Stephen Harper uh, based a a chunk of his uh, interview that we dissected a few weeks ago. There's a famous um, line from a novel published in the 50s that says, the past is a foreign country. 
they do things differently there. As you pointed out in the last episode, I don't want to get into it here, but as you pointed out in the last episode, they're not using that quote appropriately, number one. And number two, this shows that on some level, there is some coordination uh, between the two. These two guys just so happen to love this one quote that they're both misusing uh, when it comes to talking about the sticky issues in Mormon history. That seems like more than a coincidence. Right. And so uh, I think it is too. This is now a favorite quote. I made that note when I heard him say it. I, I just thought, oh my gosh, here we go again. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. This has got to be the favorite quote among Mormon church historians because they do misuse it, but the way they use it as an explanation and a dodge for getting around anything that happened in church history that doesn't make sense at all or is totally crazy by modern standards. Right. Like Joseph Smith married a 14-year-old? Ah. Foreign country, Bill. That's right. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. So there's always this ability to dismiss. Um, And again, I would tell the listener... Don't take my word for it. Don't take RFM's word for it. Like, go read on any issue you want to know more about. Don't take the church's word for it either. Go read all the data. See, here's the difference. The church is not going to encourage you to read all the available information. Think about that for a moment. Now, think about the, it would be, now again, I get it. If the critic were to come in and say, no, 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 just read Fawn Brody. No, 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 just read No Man Knows My History or read uh, Mormonism Unveiled or read uh, Sandra and uh, Gerald Tanner's, uh, what was that one? That was Mormonism. Shadow or Reality. Yeah, Shadow or Reality. So if, if the critic were only pointing you towards the critical sources, then that would also be just as problematic. That's not what the critic does. Let me just say it here. Read everything. Let me, let me recommend 25 good books on both sides of the issue, although I don't know that there's going to be 25 on the faithful side, but let's, let's give you all the available information, have you read it, and then make a reasonable, educated decision based on all the information available. Which side is telling you to do that? It certainly isn't the church's side. And I'm telling you, if you listen to the critic, they would welcome, they would welcome you reading both sides of the story. Yeah, and that's what your Mormon primer does, is try and give both sides of the story, and then a third possible side. Um, and what would we think, Bill? What would any Latter-day Saint think if they heard a Jehovah's Witness leader saying, just read our books and don't read any other books about us written by people other than the Jehovah's Witness leadership and sanctioned by the Jehovah's Witness organization? We know exactly what we'd think. What are you guys hiding? Come on. You think we, we're just going to read what you have to say about yourself? Wood tool. These are my people. So don't be bogged down on these apostates. And be careful on the Internet. Uh, we were talking about that this weekend with friends. Oh, my word, uh, how many times do I have to tell you, be careful? You know, going here, going there, they'll suck you in. See, uh, with some of this stuff, it can seem so innocent. We're just warning you that all we can do is admonish. Stick with what we have authorized. You'll be safe. You want to go out there? It's at your spiritual risk. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room 
is now dumber for having listened to it. Um, all right, let's go to question number four. Um, as you can imagine, we've received quite a few questions regarding polygamy. Um, for example, a young adult from Utah asked, I've struggled for years to come to peace about polygamy in the early church. Why was it necessary for Joseph Smith and many other leaders to practice it? And Morgan from Florida added, what do I tell my family when they ask about polygamy in the early days of the church? They aren't generally satisfied with the, well, we don't practice it anymore answer. Is it fair to ask you to answer this one, Kate? (laughs) That's a big question. (laughs) Uh, But I have studied polygamy. I actually descend from people who who chose to practice plural marriage. I have great-great-grandmas and great-great-great-grandmas who who did so. Two of them were named Sarah. It, It wasn't an easy path for them. One of them was the seventh wife, and she just didn't receive the resources and support that she needed to support herself and her children, especially after her husband died. Uh, One of them was a first wife, but all of the descendants say that it was the second wife that was the favorite (laughs) wife. The second wife got to travel with the husband while the first wife took care of all the kids and did their laundry, made their meals. Uh, but, But what I feel honored to descend from those two Sarahs and from their husbands, their example has taught me to center my life on faith. And their example has taught me to keep putting one foot in front of the other and to do so prayerfully, to, to put their lives in a little bit of um, doctrinal and historical context. The instruction we have in the Book of Mormon about plural marriage, it's Jacob chapter 2, verse 30, and Jacob says, monogamy is the Lord's wish for his people, and there are rare exceptions where the Lord commands us to practice plural marriage in order to raise up a righteous people. This is the rare exception that Joseph Smith was commanded to instigate in, in our, our church history. And Joseph Smith didn't want to. And he dragged his heels, and he was reluctant for years to do this. But eventually, he did implement plural marriage because he wanted to be obedient to God's commandment to him. He tried a little to practice plural marriage in the middle 1830s, but it was really in 1841 that he more officially, slowly began to introduce the practice of plural marriage to his trusted associates. Uh, They, when they heard, they were shocked. Uh, They pled in prayer with their Father in Heaven for understanding of this principle. And they received spiritual witnesses to them personally that this was right for them at that time. Now, as plural marriage was practiced officially for about 50 years, it was always something that people could choose. Um, we, we don't have exact numbers, in, in part because our information is incomplete, and in part because it's complicated. So scholars are still trying to get us those numbers about how many adult Latter-day Saints actually were in plural marriages. But we know that it was a minority of people that were in plural marriages. And we know that many of them were the most devout, the most stalwart members of our church. So in 1890, uh, Wilford Woodruff issued 
a manifesto that was to end the practice of plural marriage. And when some people heard this manifesto, they were relieved. Plural marriage had been hard for them, and they rejoiced. And when some people heard this manifesto, they were devastated, and they cried. They had sacrificed so much, and they had testimonies of this principle. Now, some of you, I know from your questions, wonder, what does our past practice of plural marriage mean for the afterlife, for what will greet us after this life? Our church leaders have taught us that monogamy is the rule and plural marriage is the exception. And our church leaders have taught us that plural marriage is not necessary for exaltation or for eternal glory. Now, I, as a historian and as a church member, have felt it really important that although I'm grateful personally that monogamy is the rule and plural marriage is the exception, that I not discount those testimonies and that honorable obedience of our spiritual ancestors who practiced this principle because they were being obedient and they had a testimony that it was right. Well, once again, the question is asked and Elder Cook immediately hands it off because this is not a softball question. No, he's going to hand it off to Kate Holbrook, who is a church historian who has studied this issue, who descends from polygamous marriages. And she does her best to say a number of things which are somewhat disjointed, but I just want to comment on a few of them. First thing is that she says is even in her own experience, her her great-grandmother and her great-grandmother were both polygamous wives. And she said one of them was the seventh wife and was not well provided for by her husband. Now, I thought that was uh, good of her to say that because it's more honest. It reveals the underside of plural marriage. I mean, when you get to your seventh wife for crying out loud, and I'm pretty sure she said seventh and not second. She said it pretty quickly. But yeah, I mean, resources are getting kind of slim by the time you get down to wife number seven. And she was not well provided for by her husband. And she doesn't say about the kids, but one would assume they weren't well provided for either. So there becomes this this negative underside to plural marriage. And even though she's trying to put her best spin on it, I want to give her credit for revealing the other side of the coin, at least for a glimpse, before she goes off onto other things. No, actually, she says some more negative stuff about plural marriage. She says the second wife in a plural marriage relationship was usually the favorite of the husband. Well, I guess we can understand why that might be, Bill. The second wife is going to be the favorite. And she says, and the the second wife is usually the one the husband takes out and about with her to go on trips and go here and go there. And the first wife is left home to take care of the kids and do the cleaning. And I think that she also reveals a negative side to plural marriage when she says that too. So I want to give credit to her. The thing I found strange is that Elder Cook laughs at this and can't seem to stop laughing at the idea that the second wife is the one who's the favorite and she gets taken out all the time and the first wife is left at home doing all the cleaning. But all of the descendants say that it was the second wife that was the favorite wife. The second wife got to travel with the husband while the first wife took care of all the kids and did their laundry, made their meals. Yeah, when when I heard that, my heart hurt. Like, here's this first wife 
And she's the one who's making like this huge sacrifice because she fell in love with this man. And, and she court, you know, they courted together and they, they got engaged and they got married and she had all these dreams of what that meant. And then Mormonism comes along and says like, yeah, but he has to take more wives. And, and then this guy in some way, like almost dis, disses his first wife and now treats the second wife like she's a queen and this first wife is stuck at home. That's painful. And here's an apostle of the Lord who is laughing at the pain of, an, of, of the story of another human being. And again, I can see, I mean, I get it. I see what the joke is um, in terms of looking at this superficially and like making some kind of a, um, a joke, but it's not funny and it's hurtful. And these are real people who receive trauma at the hands of having to sacrifice for this principle that they believed in deeply and to laugh at that sacrifice just isn't funny. And it, and it says something about the person who's laughing. Yes, it does. But all of the descendants say that it was the second wife that was the favorite wife. The second wife got to travel with the husband while the first wife took care of all the kids and did their laundry, made their meals. Well, she says so much, and Matt Groh, who's going to get the ball next on this question, does say that she said an awful lot there. But, you know, she cites to Jacob chapter 2, verse 30, says monogamy is the Lord's wish for his people. She goes on to talk about, you know, there are rare exceptions, according to the Book of Mormon, which is to raise up a righteous seed. Um, Joseph didn't want to do it. He was reluctant for years, tried it a bit in the mid-1830s, which is as close as they're going to get to talking about Fanny Alger. Then he stopped, finally went ahead with it because God commanded it. He is the reluctant polygamist. And so there's so much that's going on here. So let me just talk about this more generally, okay? What it is is this, and Matt Groh is going to say this later on. There are certain issues related to Joseph Smith's polygamy that are problematic for a lot of people. And everybody who knows anything about Joseph Smith's polygamy knows what the issues are. They are uh, multiple wives, 33, or in that neighborhood, wives that are married to other men, around 11 at the time Joseph Smith marries them, girls who are as young as 14 years old when Joseph Smith married, marries them, and Joseph Smith not telling Emma about all the stuff that's going on behind her back, at least for a large portion of the time. Now, those are the main problems that people have with Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy. But these are never mentioned. These questions are never mentioned. And in fact, Matt Groh is going to say next, he says, you know, a lot of people have questions about Joseph's practice of polygamy, but they, we don't have time to answer those. So just go read the book and look at the essays. But we don't have time for that because we're busy uh, going on and on with Elder Cook about softball questions, about, you know, stories about global saints, like you mentioned. So here is why this is so odd. It's because what they're doing is they are sort of hinting at answers to questions that they're not mentioning. The questions are about Joseph Smith's marrying married women, women who are already married, the teenagers, not telling Emma. They never mention any of those issues, but they're trying to hint at the answers so that if a person already knows the question, they're trying to give sort of generalized answers to it but they don't want to raise the questions themselves 
in case someone doesn't know those questions or those issues because they don't want to be the ones who let members know about those issues if they don't already know. And that's one of the problems I have with this face-to-face devotional is that not only are they not really answering the questions, they're not even giving the questions themselves. And yet they're telling you they don't hide history. And that's the very, that's the very uh, essence of what they're doing here is avoiding intentionally talking about any of the real data facts, questions that are being begged that leads someone to go like something doesn't add up here. Um, Again, it feels very deceptive. Um, You've already hit on it. I'll just be brief. When she says that the saints entered all this in their own free choice and that Joseph didn't want to do it. Again, I get that from a faithful perspective, those are things that are nice to hear. When you dive into this and you realize that the women that Joseph is selecting are young girls vulnerable to coercion and being coerced. When we look at the story of Lucy Walker, she's 15 years old. Her mom dies. Joseph Smith comes along and sends the dad on a mission and promises to take care of Lucy and her and three of her siblings as his own children. And then goes out into public once the uh, Walker daughters are living in the Smith home, goes out into public and refers to this these girls as his daughters. While at the same time, secretly and without Emma's knowledge, he is proposing eternal marriage to Lucy Walker and giving her a, a short 24-hour time frame to make a decision and references her salvation and his salvation in those conversations, then you, you again, we're not being honest about the depth of the problem that sits in this question that nobody is really addressing specifically. When you get into the dirty details of these issues, it becomes um, deeply problematic to the credibility of the prophet Joseph Smith. Like, even if we want to say the church is true, we're going to have to address on some level the unhealthy, abusive coercion that Joseph Smith as a prophet then uses to convince young girls who are vulnerable and susceptible to a, to this kind of Uh, persuasion in unhealthy ways. And those are the girls that he picks on more than one occasion over and over again. He marries two sisters, the Partridge sisters. They don't know about each other's marriage to Joseph and Emma doesn't know. And then Joseph puts on a mock sealing ceremony so that Emma sees this second ceremony and and, and does it so that she is Uh, led to believe it's the first. If we're not going to address that Joseph Smith had serious issues of morality as he navigates this issue of polygamy, even if we take a faithful stance, we are not being honest and not doing the issue justice. I agree with you. So there's an, so let's play the segment here by Matt Groh and maybe Elder Cook saying a few words, kind of finishing up this issue. Thank you very much, Kate. Matt, what would you like to add here? 
Well, Kate gave us a lot to think about there. I'll, I'll just add a, a few thoughts. As, as I think about plural marriage, it's important to remember that the vast majority of Latter-day Saints throughout time have lived in monogamous marriages and monogamous families. And to me, that reiterates what Kate was saying about uh, church leaders, the scriptures teaching us that plural marriage is an exception and monogamy is the standard. And to, to, to put it differently, uh, church leaders have taught us that a monogamous couple sealed in the temple and faithful to their covenants will receive all of the blessings of exaltation and eternity. From reading your questions about plural marriage, I know many of you have questions about Joseph Smith's practice of plural marriage. We don't have time to get into lots of those questions tonight, so I'd point you towards Saints and the Gospel Topics essays. In Saints, the, the history is told not just through the experience of Joseph Smith or other men, but through the experience of women such as Emma Smith and Emily Partridge and Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner. A couple things I would say to keep in mind about Joseph Smith's practice of plural marriage. The first is that we know that at that time there was a distinction between sealings for time and eternity that involve commitments in this life and sealings for eternity alone that only involve commitments in the life to come. We know that uh, some of Joseph Smith's sealings that appear unusual to us and are difficult to understand, fall into that, into that category of sealings for eternity alone and seem to have been about creating links between families in the next life. The other thing I would say is that the revelation to practice plural marriage did not come with an instruction manual. And that any change on this scale, any change in doctrine, society, and culture on this scale of beginning plural marriage is going to be difficult and it's going, there's going to be some unanswered questions. But historical documents do tell us about some of what plural marriage did for the Latter-day Saints. It helped bind the people together because it creates these large family networks. And Kate mentioned that one of the purposes in Jacob chapter 2 is to raise up seed or a righteous posterity. The family history records of the church, which are really extensive, tell us that about 20% of living church members descend from those who practice plural marriage. And we know that throughout time, those families have been a strength to the church. Thank you both. I just want to make three points. Uh, coming to the fruits of yeah. this, uh, it's clear that there was a lot of sacrifice in those uh, marriages. There was a lot of love and unity, but there was also sacrifice. And they taught their children to sacrifice. And those children of those plural marriages, uh, in the early years of missionaries going out to the world, Many, many of them were taking the gospel of Jesus Christ across the world and blessing everybody with that gospel. The second one is, and I've always been touched by this, is that there were some, I'm thinking of Valate Kimball, who received their own personal revelation before they knew fully about what it was that this was that this came from God. And the third one is that in the councils of the church, uh, in the senior councils of the church, uh, there's a feeling that polygamy as it was practiced uh, served its purpose and we should honor those saints, but that purpose has been accomplished and that, that it isn't necessary. Now there are unanswered questions uh, and we don't always receive revelation on everything. <clears throat> President uh, Ballard and I were laughing about this the other day and saying 
uh, when the millennium comes, there's a thousand years, and we're going to need a thousand years to uh, get the answers to all of the issues that uh, surround everything. But I want you to know that we have a loving Heavenly Father who has a perfect plan, that His plan is one of happiness, that we have a Savior who did everything for us. We can trust in them. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. I, that was so helpful. Okay, this is another example here of where it is that they're giving the answers without giving the issues. So you say, why is Matt Bro talking about a difference between marriages or ceilings for time and eternity versus marriages for eternity only? He doesn't say what the question is that he's responding to. He's just giving this out as something to keep in mind. Once again, they're not giving the questions. They're just giving these vague answers. Now, you and I know why he's saying it, because we know what the issue is. We know the issue is about Joseph Smith having sex with his wives. This huge, fiery debate. Did Joseph Smith have sex with his wives, or did he not have sex with his wives? As if you have to get married to a woman to not have sex with her, if you know what I mean. But really, that's what the debate is about. And this is the argument from Brian Hales that Matt Groh is reiterating is that, you know, if he's married for time, then, you know, it's open season on the sex. But if he's married for eternity only, well, then she's married to this other guy and he's not having sex with her. It's just for in the eternities, he's going to take this woman away from her husband for eternity. And her husband, who's also a faithful Mormon, just gets to have her in this life. So that's why he brings it up. Not giving the question, just giving the answer. Second thing is... He says, first, that he wants the people to understand that the revelation to practice plural marriage did not come with an instruction manual. And that's a laugh line. Well, he's saying this because of what a monstrous rollout the principle of plural marriage had in the LDS church. It was not coordinated. It, all sorts of different things were happening. So he's trying to cover for that by saying it didn't come with an instruction manual. But Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants is actually a very detailed instruction manual, Matt Grow. It's a very detailed instruction manual. I don't know how you can get more detailed. But the problem with that as being an instruction manual is that Joseph Smith violated every instruction that's contained in Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants as it relates to the practice of plural marriage. So he can't really say it's a good instruction manual or refer to it because Joseph Smith violated it all. Therefore, he goes to saying it did not come with an instruction manual. And you pointed out, as you wrote up here in, in an outline, I mean, it seems strange to for God. Again, if we assume the church is true, it seems strange for God, uh, for Matt Groh to be saying, like, God was really vague with how we practice polygamy. And yeah, I mean, because he was vague, we probably got some things wrong. It was a little messy. Nobody knew what they were doing. Different people were carrying out the principle in different ways, and nobody really knew for sure how we were supposed to be doing this thing. And then on the other hand, the same God of Mormonism, throughout the DNC, there are sections on mundane things where God is uber-specific lining out what we need to do. And I'll give just an example and in, in the word of wisdom, we're told all these things that we don't even care about today. Like, right. All we care about is people don't use tobacco and alcohol and coffee and tea and those kinds of things. But there's also lots of other specific things lined out in that revelation that we just don't spend two cents on today in Mormonism. And yet God doesn't seem to come out of the woodwork and say like, Hey, everybody, you should probably boil your water. That would save a lot of lives. 
the God of Mormonism seems uber focused on the unimportant. Like, let's take men's ages to serve missions from 19 to 18. And meanwhile, the Mormon God never seems to address really serious global issues um, like like uh, pollution in the world or children starving in third world countries or uh, having access to clean water in, in places that, that currently don't. Like, the Mormon God seems so concerned with changing home teaching to ministering. And even though we say, like, we're a global church and this is the prophet to the world— the prophet to the world seems really concerned with Utah issues and seems really concerned with Mormon um, issues that signal obedience, but not really issues that are global. And so in this particular issue, we have DNC sections that line out the mundane. And as you point out, we actually have a section that lines out polygamy. But Matt wants to pretend like the God of Mormonism is so ambiguous and gives us ideas and things to do and just doesn't give us much direction around those. And that really doesn't hold up and actually becomes a problem uh, of, of like logic and rationale when you dissect what God of, the God of Mormonism feels is important to address and what he seems not to. And then again, just like saying like, let's be honest, Matt, he actually does give some rules you just don't like that because Joseph broke all of them and you don't want to have that conversation. Right. Again, the problem isn't that God doesn't know how to give an instruction manual because he does. And the problem isn't the, that God didn't give an instruction manual for plural marriage because he did in section 132. The problem is that Joseph Smith did not follow the instruction manual God gave. But that gets into all those pesky questions about Joseph Smith that Matt Groh just doesn't have time for and therefore refers people to the essays and the saints book and moves along. Nothing to see here, folks. Yeah. And, and as you point out in our outline, I just want to make reference to it so the listeners can go look. If you think the God of Mormonism can, is not specific for some reason, he avoids being specific about things. Uh, as you point out, RFM, go read section 124. Open up your DNC, pull up section 124 and see just how specific your God of Mormonism can be with things that seem so mundane to the uh, long-term uh, and, and collective nature of the church as an institution. Um, but anyway, I do want to play one more little segment of Matt, just something he said in the last one. I want to repeat it and just share a thought here. So here it is. From reading your questions about plural marriage, I know many of you have questions about Joseph Smith's practice of plural marriage. We don't have time to get into lots of those questions tonight. So I'd point you towards saints and the gospel topics essays. So, with that quote there, just a quick point. Uh, again, don't have time for the to answer those questions. Don't even have time to tell you what those questions would be, but we are going to give you some vague answers to them. We just don't have time to tell you what the actual issue is that we're telling you answers to. One. Um, the second thing is that notice how cool, calm, and collective he is when he gives that answer. That was something that was orchestrated. That was a pre-written response uh, by Matt within his answer. Even if some of this they're winging, and there's times where I can sense that they are because they're really nervous like Kate was when she started to answer uh, the question when it was thrown to her by Elder Cook. But notice here how smooth in the delivery is of giving that. This for no ifs, ands, or buts, this part of his, his response was, um, was calculated and written down. And, and I simply want to say that so that you realize like 
they're making it a point in the very beginning, like, guys, we're just not going to go there. And here's how we're going to not go there. We're going to tell people we don't have time. And here's how we're going to say it. Um, that's intentional. President uh, Ballard and I were laughing about this the other day and saying, uh, when the millennium comes, there's a thousand years and we're going to need a thousand years to uh, get the answers to all of the issues that uh, surround everything. Okay, a few comments about what Elder Cook said. Elder Cook, on the tough questions, hands them off to the historians to make their historical, and I put air quotes around historical comments, and then he comes in to back clean up and bear testimony about things. Uh, what he says here is just very strange to me. He doesn't say that... Uh, plural marriage served its purpose, and in 1890, the Lord revealed that it was to stop, and uh, the manifesto was issued. Instead, he gives this weird wishy-washy kind of language where he says that those in the senior councils in the church, they, they have a feeling that plural marriage has served its purpose and shouldn't be practiced anymore. That is such a weird thing for an apostle to be saying in 2018 about a practice that was discontinued over a hundred years ago, almost 130 years ago, the manifesto is given. And he's talking about, we in the senior councils in the church have a feeling that plural marriage has served its purpose. I don't know if that's just like the way he, uh, the way he talks or the way he expresses himself, but it sounds like he's trying to leave a door open or something there for it to come back. Although I can't imagine that that's really the case. I just noted that the language was strange. And then he goes and he talks about how there are questions we don't have the answers to about Joseph Smith and his practice of plural marriage. Now, Matt Gross says there's good answers, but now Elder Cook's saying there are questions we don't have answers to about Joseph Smith and his practice of plural marriage. Those are the things we're not going to talk about. And we don't get revelation on everything. Well, really, they don't get revelation on anything, but certainly they don't get revelation to answer these questions. And then he turns it into a joke that he's laughing with Elder Ballard the other day about how it will take a thousand years during the millennium for them to get all the questions that they have finally answered. And I, I commented in my notes, that is a lot of questions and an admission. They are not going to answer them now. They have no ability to access the answers to them now. They can't get revelation to answer them now. They have no special access to God to get the answers now. And then I thought, what are we paying these apostles for anyway? Yeah, you hit on something, which is if, like, if it's going to take a thousand years to address the problematic issues in Mormonism that beg questions for which we don't have good answers. If you're an Orthodox member listening right now, ask yourself, how many questions does that involve? Like Elder Cook is tacitly admitting that the number of questions we have that are troublesome, that people are going to want to ask in the millennium, that we will very quickly, because Jesus is now present, that we will very quickly get answers to one after the other, but it's still going to take a thousand years to address them. Think about in Elder Cook's head, how many questions he knows exist based on the messiness of Mormonism. And now that you know that, let me say something I said in the, the previous thing we did with Stephen Harper. What you don't realize, to the Orthodox member, what you don't realize is that if you've gone to church every Sunday for three hours a week, you've gone to your state conferences, you've gone to your ward conferences, you've, you've attended seminary as a youth, 
What you don't realize is you don't know a thousandth, and I may be being conservative on that end. You don't know a thousandth of the messiness that exists within Mormon history. And I'm not saying like stupid questions like, hey, what did the Willie and Martin handcart company eat along the way? No. Like, why did Joseph Smith have a relationship with a 16-year-old girl who was working in his home two years before ceiling keys were restored? Why did Joseph Smith marry another girl 16 years old who he had a a father-daughter relationship with and God commanded him to change that into a husband-wife relationship? Why, Why did Joseph Smith keep this secret of polygamy and all the wives that he had from his dear wife, his first wife, Emma. Why did Joseph think that the book of Abraham text was the, was found on the Egyptian papyri when it wasn't like there are thousands of questions begging to be asked that lead one to say like, wait a minute, this doesn't add up here in Mormonism. And elder cook is admitting that the questions are so numerous and so far reaching that even with Jesus present, it's going to take us a thousand years to work through them. Yes. And here, once again, I'm reminded of what Elder Ballard said back in November in the promo for his face-to-face with Elder Oaks. You'll recall that he said that there are questions that they don't have answers to, and those are the questions that they're not going to talk about. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those, I think, would be the ones we avoid. Well, they're still following that same modus operandi here. All the questions that they don't have answers to, they're not going to talk about. They're just going to throw a few vague potential answers out there without actually talking about what the questions are. Awesome. Let's go to the next soundbite. And and I want to make a note here before we go into it. The question is on the first vision accounts. And here's what I would make note of. Every single time that church leadership or its historians are talking publicly about the messiness of Mormonism and how we have good answers or how we should frame our perspective, it's always the first vision that's used as the one specific issue to get into. Uh, Stephen Harper did this uh, in the dissection that uh, Radio Free Mormon and I did a few weeks back, where he talks about how we, we like to make assumptions about what Joseph would have come out of the grove and what he would have said to others, and it's not fair to make those assumptions. The first vision is always the issue that's used specifically because I think it's the softest issue to make these ambiguous, like we don't know, and you know, the past is a foreign country. And it's the easiest issue to like smooth over and go like, nothing to see here, people. And I simply want to say like, notice that and notice all the issues they don't want to go into specifically and why that may be. And here's the question on the first vision. So for our next question, we want to talk a little bit about the first vision of the prophet Joseph Smith. So Brooke from Idaho asked, why are the accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision a little different? Why do we use the version that we use? We're aware that there have been, uh, that there are some slight differences and, uh, in that. And uh, Matt, again, this is one where I think you've spent quite a bit of time. Maybe you can take just a little while to answer this one. 
Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, obviously, an important question since the first vision is so important to who we are as Latter-day Saints. Joseph Smith recorded or asked his scribes to record four different accounts of that vision. Some of these accounts, critics have pointed out, contain differences in emphases and details. The longest of the accounts is one he wrote in 1838 to explain the rise of the church uh, to the public. And that's why that one became part of the Pearl of Great Price. That's why we use it. Now, the accounts themselves tell a basically consistent story. But as I mentioned, there are these differences. That shouldn't surprise us. If there was complete uniformity among the accounts, that's when I, as a historian, would become suspicious. Because that's just not the way that memory works. We see the pattern in other accounts in history or in the scriptures, such as Paul's vision on the road to Damascus. I've sometimes thought about it in this way. Imagine that you tell the story of how you met your spouse or your future spouse in four different settings over time. The first, you record it on the day you meet. You write, go home and write it in your journal. The second, at your wedding reception, there's a video of you telling the story to your friends. The third, you write a letter to your 12-year-old daughter. And the fourth, you tell your grandchildren and others at your 50th wedding anniversary. So four different accounts given for four different purposes to four different audiences. Are there going to be differences? Yeah. <laughs> there are. Another uh, important thing to keep in mind is how hard it is to capture a sacred experience in language. Joseph Smith himself called language a narrow little prison. You ever felt like that? <laughs> and Matt, so think about your own most sacred experiences. How easy is it to put them into words? As I've thought deeply about these accounts... Rather than be troubled by them, I feel like we should celebrate that we have multiple accounts because they give us new insight, new perspective. And if you have questions on the, 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 the accounts of the first vision, there is a gospel topics essay on it. And go read them. They're on LDS.org. Take a few minutes this week. Go read the four accounts. It's been my experience that doing so will deepen your appreciation of what happened that day. Matt, thank you. You've covered that just uh, beautifully. I just want to testify, as most of you have across your life, that Joseph Smith did see God the Father and Jesus Christ, and he was the instrument for the restoration of the gospel. I testify of that. Next question. Thank you. All right, so first I want to just say, with what Matt just uh, iterated in terms of the first vision, um, one, I want to congratulate him at the end he suggests to each of you, talking to the youth that were listening at this face-to-face, -face, that you go read the First Vision accounts. They're on LDS.org. Go find the Gospel Topic essay on the First Vision. Read that first. That way you have a framing for the faithful way in which we, we present this issue. And then go read the four accounts. Matt says these accounts are eh, basically consistent. But notice his voice. Like, basically, I mean, basically they're consistent. 
that's hilarious because if you go read these, and I'll tell you a story, which I think is funny. I went to, uh, we had a, let me say it again, uh, tell you a story. We, we had a fireside at my home. The fireside was on the gospel topic essays. I invited people from my ward. I invited uh, listeners to the podcast. This was, I think, last year, maybe about a year ago. And we had uh, a fireside in my home. About 30 people showed up. And we went through each of the essays for about 10 to 15 minutes each, talked about why they're addressing the issue, what the questions or issues are that critics are raising with that particular subject, and and then um, allowed for everybody to ask questions on each of these essays. When I And I presented this in a faithful way. When I got to the first vision, I talked about how memory is tricky how the audience that Joseph is speaking to is different. And a member of my ward in Santa Clara, Utah, raised his hand and said, Bill, let's be honest. He goes, I know that's the way we talk about this issue, but I've read the accounts. My family and I, we sat down three days ago and we read these accounts in preparation for this fireside and they're not the same. They're not consistent. What Joseph says in that 1832 account about his motives, what was going on, how old he was, what he experienced, whether he saw one being or two, said it didn't match the 1838 account at all. So that should be telling. Now, that's just one person. Maybe they're the ones who are wrong. Again, follow Matt or Matt Gross' suggestion and go read the four accounts. But don't read them saying like, look, I know they're basically consistent. Read them going like, I really want to know what are the differences and are the differences significant? And when you understand what's going through Joseph's head, how old is he? How many beings show up? What's the message of those beings? It is very different. Sure, there are similarities. They probably both occurred on a spring morning. It probably wasn't raining on both in both uh, tellings. Uh, Joseph had clothes on in both accounts. Um, there were probably clouds in the sky on both accounts. Like we can come up with a bunch of things and go like, yeah, they're really consistent. Meh, basically, but they're not. There are lots of differences, and those differences are extremely significant to how we frame the restoration and the first vision that initiates it. Yes, and I've got to tell you something. I get so tired of hearing this apologetic response that Matt gives about how he would be suspicious if the different accounts that Joseph Smith gave of the first vision were consistent. That is absolutely ridiculous. Actually, Matt Gross should talk to every police officer in the entire world because they find things exactly the opposite. They get suspicious when a suspect gives different stories that are not consistent. So that's just absolutely 180% different from how the rest of the world operates. That he says they're basically consistent, but you know, there's some difference in details, points of emphasis, but he would be suspicious if they were consistent. That is absolutely flat out wrong. And I'm really getting tired of hearing this kind of argument about the first vision because it makes no sense. And this is another point here. What Matt does here with the first vision accounts is he gives several apologetic responses without saying what the heck the issue is. 
Once again, he's trying to give answers, in this case, apologetic answers, without even letting the audience know what the issues are. One of the things I want to do at this point, though, if I can, oh, this will get into this, okay? Because remember back when Elder Cook was saying about the book Saints, if the book says it was cold, it was cold, everything's been fact-checked. If it says Parley Pratt was angry with Joseph Smith, Parley Pratt was angry with Joseph Smith. And in the case of the first vision, if it says there were two beings that appeared to Joseph Smith, then there were two beings that appeared to Joseph Smith. That was actually your line, Bill. And then I thought of Shakespeare. Two beings or not two beings? That is the question. Here he comes. Yeah, and here, Matt, remember, they keep referring back to saints. Go to saints. It's absolutely gold. It's the gold standard. It's gold, Jerry. Gold. Well, Bill, let me just go over this really quickly for you and me and the audience. I think we all know 1832 account, two main problems. In the 1832 account, Joseph Smith already knows before he goes to the grove to pray that every single church is an apostasy and God's church is not on the earth. He does not go to pray about which church is true. He already knows that. He goes to pray for forgiveness. Also, when he gets there, he mentions seeing only one being in the vision, and that being is Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, okay, and I can't go into a whole lot of detail about the the first vision accounts. I'm going to expect people will know that or do their own research. Let's go to the book Saints and see how it portrays the first vision account. You have to go to chapter two, and what you're gonna find out is that according to the book Saints, Joseph Smith saw two beings, the father and the son. There's nothing in there about the first account, the 1832 account, the only account written in Joseph Smith's handwriting mentioning only one being, and there's nothing in there about the difference in the motivation that Joseph Smith had of going to the grove to pray. So even in this highly touted, new, wonderful book of church history, they're still hiding church history. Here's what it says. At that moment, a pillar of light appeared over his head. It descended slowly and seemed to set the woods on fire. As the light rested on him, Joseph felt the unseen power, that was the dark power, release its hold. The Spirit of God took its place, filling him with peace and unspeakable joy. Peering into the light, Joseph saw God the Father standing above him in the air. His face was brighter and more glorious than anything Joseph had ever seen. God called him by name and pointed to another being who appeared beside him. This is my beloved son, he said. Hear him. So where in that is any indication that the 1832 account mentions only Jesus appearing? Yeah, and for me, it's bigger than that. Like you can portray one showing up and then the other. Um, Again, the 1838 account seems to imply they show up at the same time. The 1835 account, I think, does have one showing up and then the next. And then the 1832 account just has one showing up altogether. Again, Matt likes to say like, hey, it's a sacred experience. So, I mean, sacred experiences are going to be shared in a different way. And he uses, for instance, Paul on the road to Damascus for how stories can be told in different ways by a single author, except that that's not a single author. If we understand biblical scholarship and biblical criticism, we recognize that Paul is almost certainly not the author, and that in fact, we actually have more than one author sharing 
each of those two variations of the story on the road to Damascus. You hit on another point, which I want to I want to um, add some detail to. You talked about this idea of uh, Matt being telling the audience we ought to be um, skeptical when we hear a story told the same way. Matt's talking about apples and oranges. If somebody were to get up and every time they share an account to a a police officer describing an event, if they were to use the exact same wording, exact same, tell the story exactly the same way every time, we would all understand that somehow that person has rehearsed or is being fed uh, a story to tell that the story almost certainly isn't being told um, simply from that person recounting their memory. So then we now have questions raised and we say like, wait a minute, something's probably wrong here. What Matt's doing though, is he's conflating it with something else, which is when someone doesn't use the exact same wording, but they tell a completely consistent story. None of us raise an eyebrow to somebody who tells a consistent story, articulating it differently, unless that person's details are contradicting himself in a way that raises skepticism about his credibility. So when someone tells a consistent story, there's never an issue. If when I've told, he used the example of having a, uh, how you met your wife and how that first date went. And I've told that story over and over and over again. I have been deeply consistent. I would welcome somebody uh, asking me today, asking me in a year, and then ask me again in 10 years. I have been deeply consistent about that story. Um, I may have left out a little detail here or there, but I'm not changing my story. It's not that my wife and I's first date was at a restaurant called Buzz's Eating Experience, And then on another time, it was at Burger King. I haven't done that. It's not that I told my, my, um, my children and then told others that our first date was going to see the movie Toy Story and then going to dinner at Buzz's Eating Experience afterward. And then on another occasion, I tell everybody I went to see Pocahontas. Um, that doesn't work. So when Matt's saying this, it's apples and oranges. Yes, you don't want to hear a witness tell the story the exact same way. On the other hand, you definitely want to see a witness being consistent over their multiple tellings. And while Matt says Joseph Smith was eh, basically consistent, the truth is in the way he said basically, you also can sense that it's not consistent at all. I agree. And can I just mention this one last thing? Because... Unfortunately, this book, Saints, which has been heralded as this honest approach to church history, here when we're talking about the first vision, here when we have people like you and me in the audience who know what the issues are with the different first vision accounts, we can see how deceptive they're being. And here's another paragraph. First off, in what I already read, there's no indication that Joseph Smith ever wrote that only one being appeared to him in the 1832 account of the first vision. Now there is a link, you can go to the footnotes and there's it's packed with footnotes and you can find a link maybe and go to it and find it in the Joseph Smith Papers Project if you are that ambitious. So I will say that much. But as to the fact of what Joseph Smith's intent was when he went to the grove, which changed of course, 
from the 1832 account to subsequent accounts. In the 1832 account, he already knows there's an apostasy just from his own study of the Bible. And he's going to ask for forgiveness. In subsequent accounts, like the 1832, excuse me, the 1838 account, he doesn't know there's an apostasy until he goes to the grove. And that's why he goes to the grove to pray, which church is true. And when Jesus tells him they're all corrupt, he says, that had never even entered into my mind before then, which is a complete contradiction to the 1832 account, which was only written six years before 1832 to 1838. But here's how they deal with this problem in the book Saints. And this is the second paragraph from the bottom of of chapter two. In the years that followed, he recounted the vision more publicly, drawing on scribes who could help him better express what defied all description. Now that's a, a weird apologetic right there. Scribes are people who write down what you say. They're trying to say Joseph Smith is using them to help him express his story better. It's another apologetic. It's a weird one. I'm going to move on because that's not the main point. It goes on. He told of his desire to find the true church and described God the Father appearing first to introduce the Son. He wrote less about his own search for forgiveness and more about the Savior's universal message of truth and the need for a restoration of the gospel. That's how they deal with the problem that it's not he wrote less about his own search for forgiveness and more about the Savior's message of truth and restoration of the gospel. He went from saying nothing about the restoration and everything about forgiveness to saying nothing about forgiveness and everything about the restoration of the gospel. That's how they deal with that. And finally, this is in the final complete paragraph. This is about his intent when he went to the grove to pray. And when did he learn that the true church was no longer on the earth? Was it before he went to the grove or after? This is how they deal with it in the last paragraph. I'm sorry, I'm trying. This is just really, it's the height of deception. With each effort to record his experience, Joseph testified that the Lord had heard and answered his prayer. Okay, well, that's true, except that his prayer was different in the different accounts, and the answer was different in the different accounts. But yeah, that's true. With each effort to record his experience, Joseph testified that the Lord had heard and answered his prayer, and now this sentence. As a young man, he learned that the Savior's church was no longer on the earth, period. Okay, yeah, as a young man, he learned that the Savior's church was no longer on the earth, and that's how they elide and brushed by the fact that the different accounts have him learning that at different times, one before he goes to the grove to pray and one after he's in the grove. So what this does is very, very carefully and artfully uses words to avoid the very issues and the very transparency that the church is proclaiming this new book is supposed to present. Right. In one account, he learns that information through his own study, prayer, and thought. In the other account, the Messiah of the world visits him and tells him that none of the churches are true and that something's going to happen. It is this kind of clever, artful wording that required six years for this book to go through the approval process and finally be published earlier this month. Right. 
you have everybody looking at it saying, look, we can't tell them what really happened. We can't tell them how, you know, what, what the facts really are, but we also can't say something that shows that we're being, uh, that we're lying. So we got to find ways to say all these words so subtly and ambiguously, and they have to have double meanings, and we have to say it in a way that leaves open multiple interpretation. Like, you're right, six years of trying to put this thing together, um, and that's just the first book. There are more books of saints coming. And if they each take six years to write, you won't expect this series to be done for about another 45 to 55 years. Yes, I almost expected a line to be in this part about the first vision, that in the 1832 account of the first vision, Joseph Smith reported seeing a little short of two beings. (laughs) Like one and three quarter. (laughs) One and three quarter beings. We cover it in the other three accounts, so one and three quarter beings and he was the instrument for the restoration of the gospel. So at the end of this answer to the question, Elder Cook once again weighs in. He doesn't say a whole lot. He's rather brief in his comments here. But it's just kind of amusing to me that he makes the first of three separate gaffes when he is speaking. Now, I will tell you that I make gaffes all the time. When I'm recording a podcast, I go back and I edit it very carefully. Sometimes I have to put other things in. In other words, new material because I've said something wrong. And even now, if I go back and listen to an old podcast, I will still catch myself saying the wrong word or maybe even the wrong name. So I know this is just a human foible. And so I laugh at it for myself and I'm just laughing at it for Elder Cook, too. I'm not trying to make a big point out of it. It's just kind of funny that there's three, and one of them's kind of famous, as you know. But here at the end, where he's testifying about uh, God and Jesus Christ and saying that Joseph Smith was the... Sorry, I was into the second one. Here it is. See, there you see. I'm going, making slips. But Elder Cook slips up and says that Joseph Smith wasn't the instrument of the restoration. If you listen really closely, it's obvious he meant to say that he's testifying that Joseph Smith was the instrument of the restoration, but he sort of slips a little bit and says inadvertently that Joseph Smith wasn't the instrument of the restoration. And he was the instrument for the restoration of the gospel. And he was the instrument for the restoration of the gospel. So like I say, uh, it's not the end of the world. Everybody makes mistakes. It's just kind of amusing to me to hear an apostle of Jesus Christ testifying that Joseph Smith wasn't the instrument of the restoration. And the next one, I think, is in the very next question, which is, by my count, is question number six. And it has to do with Kirtland Temple manifestations. It's another softball question. It's sort of a, a puffy question. And it will go, of course, to who will it go to, Bill? Oh, the softball questions, my friend, they go to Elder Quentin Cook. He's a master of taking the softball questions. Exactly. So play the tape on this one. Um, So Caitlin asks, we know that the early saints had to work hard to build the Kirtland Temple so that the Savior might have a place to manifest himself and restore priesthood keys. With this in mind, would you teach us about the significance of those events and what the Lord would have us sacrifice as young adults so that we can benefit from those keys and feel a greater manifestation of the Savior in our lives? Well, thank you. I'm glad she sent that question in, and uh, I think it's uh, really a very significant question. Uh, I wish the Kirtland were hearing this. They're sitting there at the Kirtland uh, Temple, and... uh, and as you look at this early history, nothing could be more important than Kirtland along with Nauvoo, Harmony 
equally important. We could go right, right down the list. But in Kirtland, one of the incredible things that happened was the Kirtland Temple and the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. And we, we have the account of that in the 109th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. It was the prayer, the dedicatory prayer that Joseph Smith offered. And, and he said that he received that by revelation. And in that prayer, he asked the Lord that, uh, to accept of the sacrifice they had made and asked that uh, he prayed that it would be acceptable to the Lord. And one week later, after the dedication, uh, the Joseph Smith and Oliver had another vision. This was on Easter and also Passover. And uh, the Lord uh, came in vision form and accepted the house as, he, as it had been prayed that he would accept it. And, uh, and told the saints there that they should rejoice because they had sacrificed to build that house. The description of the Savior is just absolutely incredible in that section. And then after that vision uh, closed, then we had three ancient prophets that came. Moses, who came, and he restored the keys for the gathering of Israel from the four parts of the earth. We had Elias come, and he committed the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham. Those keys, President Nelson has said, help prepare people for the kingdom of God. And then the third was Elijah, who came and restored the keys that we think of as the sealing power, binding uh, people together, uh, children to parents, husbands to wives, all of those, all of those sealing powers. And the restoration of those keys uh, was just absolutely essential to accomplish the Lord's purposes. We not only needed the scriptures, the Book of Mormon, but we needed those ordinances. We needed those keys. And so the Kirtland Temple is absolutely remarkable. And the accounts uh, in both the 109th and 110th section are just uh, incredible. And those keys, with the feeling that prophets always have about temples, have never been important more important than they are now. So uh, the question that she's asking about, about Kirtland and the purpose of Kirtland, it couldn't be more important. And uh, we're grateful that she asked that question. Thank you very much. So here Elder Cook does his second slip up. This one he catches himself on where he's talking about the keys that were restored at the Kirtland Temple. He says those keys have never been important and then he catches himself and says, uh, never been more important than they are now. And those keys with the feeling that prophets always have about temples have never been important, more important than they are now. And those keys with the feeling that prophets always have about temples have never been important, more important than they are now. So that part he catches. So that's the second of three slips. The third one will be in a later question. Once again, I'm not trying to make a big thing out of this. I misspeak all the time. It's just funny that Elder Cook misspeaks these two times. He ends up saying the opposite of what he intends to say. And it ends up being an unfaithful thing he's saying instead of a faithful thing. I find it amusing. I have a twisted sense of humor. But another thing that he does say, and apparently he says it correctly, is once again, he chooses a strange phrase. When he's talking about Jesus appearing at the Kirtland Temple. And honestly, Bill, I don't know why he's using this phrase, but instead of just saying that Jesus appeared at the Kirtland Temple, which is the way I've heard it for 40 years in the LDS Church, he says Jesus appeared 
in vision form in the Kirtland Temple. And like I say, uh, I don't know why he's using these unusual choices of words. He did it before, if you recall, when he says uh, that we in the senior councils in the church have the feeling that plural marriage has served its purpose and it shouldn't be practiced anymore. And here he's saying that Jesus appeared in vision form in the Kirtland Temple. Have you ever heard anybody try and make a distinction about Jesus appearing in vision form in the Kirtland Temple? I haven't, but his comments seemed intentional. It seemed like he, again, I think he's reading off a teleprompter, which is why I think he misses the the word there that gives him kind of the gaff uh, in his statement. But when he's talking about being in vision form, again, I think that's a sentence that's on his teleprompter. And so it's intentional. It feels intentional. Uh, but I don't know why he feels drawn to say that unless on some level the church is wanting to move into areas of less physical literalness and making space for people to believe that something spiritual happened even if a physical personage didn't physically show up. You know, it's interesting in that way because I know the next question is going to deal with the Book of Mormon translation, and there is this huge shift that is suddenly happening that I'm seeing in the church from different people. We'll see it again here, especially from Kate Holbrook as she answers the question, where for the past 40 years, I've been taught that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon that we have today from the gold plates. And now there seems to be a movement afoot to fudge that line and to start equating translation with revelation in some way. And when we get to that, I know that you had already heard from some sources that this type of thing was going to be underway in the church, and it looks like it's proceeding full steam ahead. Yeah, and I'll simply say here that I've heard it from um, two credible sources. I actually have a third source, but I don't, I can't verify as well um, where where he's getting his information and to say that that's, that's trustworthy. But I have two sources, and two sources have said essentially the same thing, although maybe a little different. One told me it was a 10-year plan um, and that they were going to uh, create a space for members to not see the Book of Mormon translation as literally. The other person said it was a 20-year plan and that they were going to slowly move away from the word translation and would end up in a place where they called Joseph's translation productions simply revelation. And when I put that out on Facebook, that I had heard that from multiple sources, that they were essentially saying the same thing with a little difference, which by the way, um, Matt Grow would appreciate because if everybody had a consistent story, that might point to an issue of being not true. <laughs> Since I have the data slightly different, um, that would prove that my, my sources are more credible. And Dan Peterson tended to question what I was saying, what I was, what I was um, putting across as what I had heard, and he was doubting it. He actually put a blog post, a post out on his Pathias website <clears throat> where he talked about that. And I simply want to tell Dan and everybody else who's listening that I think you're seeing it. I think in the last uh, three to four weeks, I can't remember exactly what they were, but there's been three or four instances, uh, this one being the last one here, where church leaders or people who speak on behalf of the church 
are beginning to talk about translation very differently, and they're beginning to make space. And here specifically, as we're going to play the soundbite next, here specifically, you're seeing the very thing I said would happen, which is that the word translation would be shifted over to revelation. Uh, so are you ready for the next soundbite? Hang on just a second. I have to do something. Ooh, that sound was interesting. I, I heard that sound a lot as a teenager. Uh, I've heard it a lot in the as an adult, too. It could be a lot of things, uh, RFM. What was that noise I just heard? That is the sound of the diet caffeinated soda that shall not be named. <laughs> play, the, <laughs> play the tape. And, and whatever things you guys thought it was, remember, doubt your doubts. <laughs> um, so... We're going to ask a few questions about the translation of the Book of Mormon. Okay. Um, Derek from Canada asked, did Joseph translate the gold plates or was it strictly revelation? And Taylee from Washington asked, what role did the Urim and Thummim play in the translation of the Book of Mormon? Good questions. Kate, we'll throw this hard one to you. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Could I have that Book of Mormon, Matt? This is a... This is a first edition Book of Mormon. We knew there were a lot of questions coming in about translation, so we thought we would bring this to, to show you tonight. And, and Kate, uh, do you know how valuable a first edition Book of Mormon <laughs> is? Uh, I think that when they knew it was entrusted to Kate, they allowed it to come up. Matt, I don't think we would have qualified to get that. <laughs> no, I'm more nervous. <laughs> Joseph Smith tells us in this edition and in the editions you have access to today that he translated the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. Some of us want a little more detail than that, but that is what he told us. His translation experiences were sacred and very personal, and he just didn't give us much detail. Fortunately, he had scribes and friends who let us know a little bit more about the translation process. Uh, we know that he started with a scholarly approach where he looked at the gold plates and he studied the characters and he wrote the characters onto a piece of paper and he studied those and uh, he sent those characters to scholars who, who wouldn't help him and he decided this scholarly approach is not working. And then he turned to a revelatory approach. And with the revelatory approach, he used both the Urim and Thummim and a seer stone to help him with the translation process. And the word translation is, is still relevant, but also revelation is relevant in understanding what was going on here. Now, the Urim and Thummim, you might have read, uh, mentioned in the Book of Mormon, it was buried with the plates. So when Moroni gave Joseph Smith the golden plates, he also gave him the Urim and Thummim. The seer stone was not buried with the plates. It was something that Joseph had found on his own years earlier that helped him to feel in tune with spiritual revelation. So he used both. Seems like he used the seer stone a little more often. Emma, who was one of his scribes, later remembered that whenever Joseph sat down to start translating again, he wouldn't ask, now where was I? Where did we leave off? He would just start right at the point where they had left off. Uh, uh, we know, oh, uh, this might be interesting for you. <laughs> 
Orson Pratt actually walked in later after the Book of Mormon was finished and published, and Joseph Smith was working on a new translation of the Bible, and he wasn't using the seer stone, and he wasn't using the Urim and Thummim. And he said, why are you not using the seer stone? And Joseph Smith said, when I started this process, I needed them. And I have developed sufficiently. I've built up my translation muscles enough now that I no longer need those physical objects in order to perform this translation process. A couple of more things to keep in mind quickly. One is that it took three months to translate the Book of Mormon. <coughs> it took eight months to print it. It took six years to write Saints Volume 1 over here, <laughs> although that involved a really long approvals process, and the Book of Mormon didn't need the approvals process. Uh, also, if you look at a page of Joseph Smith's personal journal that he wrote three years after translating the Book of Mormon, it's full of crossed out words, incomplete thoughts, broken sentences. When you look at a page of the dictated Book of Mormon, there's none of that. It's complete, beautiful prose, no, nothing crossed out, um, complete sentences. Now, this is all very interesting to me, but what matters to me is the contents of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is the place where King Benjamin taught me to prioritize generosity over judgment. The Book of Mormon is the place where Alma Sr. taught me what it means when I become baptized, what I'm promising to do for my fellow saints. And the Book of Mormon is the place where Moroni taught me about how important charity is and what to do to obtain it. The Book of Mormon has shaped who I am, how I see the world, and when I do something well, I thank the Book of Mormon. So there's a couple of things that get me on this. One is that she thanks the Book of Mormon when she does something well. That seems odd. It's a book. It, it's word, not its words necessarily, but it's word, the spirit of Christ within it. Christ is the word. Certainly has power uh, if from a faithful perspective to change lives. And, and even in the perspective that I currently am, I actually hold the position of the Book of Mormon being sacred scripture. Um, so I'm comfortable with saying like that book prompts me if I apply the truth within its word, it, it prompts me to do good in the world. Um, but I don't thank the Book of Mormon. I, I wouldn't thank the Book of Mormon any more than I would thank the Bhagavad Gita or uh, a set of poems from Carolyn Pearson. Uh, I would certainly give credit to like that's where... Um, that's where I, I was at when the inspiration came to do something different, but I'm recognizing like God is the author of all that. Again, this may seem nitpicky, uh, but the one thing that did catch my eye is when she told the quote by Orson Pratt, when she said it, it caught me a little off guard because I could tell that she was paraphrasing, but she was talking to the audience as if she wanted them to think she was saying Orson Pratt's exact words and didn't want to sit and stop and take the time to set the context and give what Orson Pratt actually said. So let me just read. Um, I actually had to, I found the quote of first on Fair Mormon. And they have a question there. Why did Joseph Smith eventually stop using the seer stones to receive revelation? And then they share the quote from Pratt. 
which is, here's his exact words. It says, while this thought passed through the speaker's mind, this is Orson Pratt writing. It's in the Millennial Star. I believe the date's 1873. Uh, I'll try to find the exact issue here in a moment to tell the listeners so they can go find it themselves. Uh, But the quote is, while this thought passed through the speaker's mind, Joseph, as if he read his thoughts, and I assume Orson's talking about himself, looked up and explained that the Lord gave him the Urim and Thummim when he was inexperienced in the spirit of inspiration. But now he had advanced so far that he understood the operations of the spirit and did not need the assistance of that instrument. Um, I just wanted the listeners to have the full quote and to know exactly what Orson Pratt was saying. The reference... Uh, goes to a Richard L. Anderson, the mature Joseph Smith and treasure searching Brigham Young University studies, number uh, 24, uh, issue number four. But there's also the Millennial Star, 36th, 11th of August, 1874. Sorry, I was off by a year. Pages 498 and 499. Um, Nothing super significant here other than to say we as a church want to point to, yes, Joseph used a seer stone. He used it a lot. He used the Nephite interpreters less. The reality is the data points to the seer stone being really the only instrument used, but because there's just enough mention of the Nephite interpreters and that it would hurt the credibility of Joseph Smith if such an instrument didn't exist, we tell the Orthodox member of the church, as we're making this shift, we say, yeah, Joseph used two tools. He used the seer stone, got that from Moroni. It was buried with, I'm sorry, he used the, the Nephite interpreters, the spectacles, the, the Urim and Thummim. They were uh, a tool given to him. Uh, Moroni had buried him with the plates. They're in the box when Joseph receives the plates. He gets that tool. And then there's the seer stone. Joseph got this somewhere else. Notice she doesn't want to tell you where he got it doesn't want to talk about treasure digging, doesn't want you to understand that Joseph used that same stone scamming people out of money for years on end when he told people there was buried Spanish bullion in the hills of Palmyra, New York, and the surrounding geography, uh, the surrounding area, and never was there any real Spanish bullion, silver, uh, these Spanish silver mines. They didn't exist They're not real. It's a fictional thing. And that Joseph was paid by others to point them to where the treasure was. These people would dig into the side of hills extensively. I'm not talking about like a six foot well. I'm talking about caverns into the hill, like digging out a cave. And then as they got all the way inside, 20 feet in with this giant hole into the side of of the mound, then suddenly Joseph would tell them this treasure had sunken back into the earth and it was gone. She doesn't want to tell any of that. There's not enough time, as Matthew Gross says, to talk about these things. Um, So, again, even in giving this answer, there's so many questions begging to be asked that walk her and Matt and Elder Cook right into the fallacies of their logic, but there's just not enough time to do that. Uh, So what we're left with is that both instruments were used, the seer stone way more than the Nephite interpreters, in spite of Mormonism not emphasizing that seer stone for the last 170-something years, 180 years now at this point, 185, I think, is our last general conference we had. Um, That's probably enough for me on that, but just to say, like, this gets way messier than what they want to say and not say. I agree with you. I had just a few notes that I wanted to make. Uh, I don't want to get too much into the the treasure digging either, although it's been... uh, 
extensively documented and heavily fought against by the LDS Church. Um, they have had denials of that in official church publications as recently as the 1980s. And still, they have been dragged kicking and screaming to the transparency table on Joseph Smith's treasure digging, as well as on a host of other issues. Um, it is interesting, though, that one of the excuses for a failure, which apparently it was always a bust for Joseph Smith, because otherwise... He would have had it made. He would have been on easy street if he could actually find this hidden gold and treasure. One of the excuses was is that they did the, the spell wrong or maybe even the sacrifice wrong or the guardian spirits of the treasure made the treasure sink away into the earth so that as much as they dug, it's kind of like clam digging, I guess. You got to dig really fast, right? Otherwise, the clam will sink away into the sand, and similarly, this treasure will sink away into the earth. So it's just an excuse for a failed expedition. But of course, the similarity which most LDS people and these historians obviously don't want to talk about is that you've got treasure, like gold treasure, being hidden, excuse me, hidden in the earth, protected by guardian spirits. And the similarity in that story to the Book of Mormon account that we have, even in the official version of gold plates being hid in the, hidden in the earth and protected by a guardian angel named Moroni. And even the Book of Mormon itself seems to indicate some of this, um, this activity with treasure digging only in the sense that I think it's in the Book of Helaman where it talks about slippery treasures and that the treasures become slippery and then they sink away into the earth. Do you remember that passage, Bill? I do. I couldn't tell you where exactly it's at, but definitely the phrase is used. Let me see if I can find it here really quick. Here. We've got study, helps, combination. It's Helaman, chapter 13, and verses 31, 33, and 36, where it talks about the Lord cursing the riches of the Nephites, that they become slippery. Yes, verse 31, And behold, the time cometh that he curseth your riches, that they become slippery, that, you ca that ye cannot hold them. And in the days of your poverty, ye cannot retain them. And then in verse 33, Oh, that we had remembered the Lord our God in the day that he gave us our riches, and then they would not be have become slippery, that we should lose them. For behold, our riches are gone from us. And it says a similar thing then in verse 36. So you have... These things in the Book of Mormon that just strike us as kind of weird when we read them today, and we're, we're prone to interpret them poetically in some sense, though it's not exactly clear what they mean, that their treasures get slippery and they can't hold on to them. But when you look at it in the context of Joseph Smith and what he was doing in his environment and his culture with the money digging, uh, they become painfully clear as to what it looks like they mean. Yeah, and verse 35 seems to be the most similar to the rhetoric, the articulation Joseph gave and others gave to the treasure-digging trade. Uh, verse 35, Yea, we have hid up our treasures, and they have slipped away from us because of the curse of the land. Right, and over and over again, Joseph Smith's story is that he goes to the hill to get the plates, and he keeps getting thwarted in getting the plates over a four-year period. 
where he cannot get the plates and there's some reason that he can't do it. One time he goes to get them and he gets like a, an electric jolt and thrown back on his back and and he realizes the reason he couldn't get the plates is because he wanted them for the gold, the value of the gold instead of for what could be written on them. So Moroni can be quite the guardian spirit of the gold plates as well. How much does Tumbaga uh, fetch on the open market? You've got to tell me that as well as what a first edition of the Book of Mormon does. <laughs> <laughs> we, by the way, we have a first edition Book of Mormon within our company. Really, I'll just a little side tangent, just giving something to listener. So we have a first edition. We had it priced at $90,000. Ours, ours is in really good condition. The binding's in good shape. The pages are in good shape. There's all the uh, vestiges of... Uh, what it would have looked like, like in its original condition, some of that still exists with this book, like the uh, gold-flecked uh, paint that would have been on the outside of the pages. So when the book was closed, you would have had this glimmer on the pages themselves. Some of that is still existing in our book. Uh, recently, there was an auction for another first edition of the Book of Mormon. It sold for, I think, $89,000. It was in not as good of shape as our book, and so immediately after that auction, we raised the price of ours to 120 grand. So, if there's any listeners out there who are deeply uh, fond of wanting to own a first edition of the Book of Mormon, and you've got 120,000 dollars laying around, you can contact Family Pond, and uh, we would love to move one. Is your is your plug over, Bill? That's it. That's my plug. <laughs> you know, uh, back in the early 1980s. Uh, I was at a museum, and they happened to have at this museum a one of the first editions of the Book of Mormon. And I said, "Well, could I see it?" And so they said, "Sure." And they uh, they they brought it out from the archives where it was held. And of course, I wasn't outside uh, in Nauvoo with bugs flying everywhere. And I was in this uh, room, and they made me put on plastic gloves. And the person who brought it out, the archivist, had plastic gloves on. And I was allowed to open it up on a stand and very carefully thumb, thumb through the pages. So that was back in the early 1980s. So I've got to tell you that I did do a little bit of a double take when Kate Holbrook bends down and whips out an original copy of the Book of Mormon in the outdoors in her bare hands to show to the audience. Do you have people put on gloves when they, are they allowed to handle the copy of the Book of Mormon you have, the first edition? So I will say that generally speaking, that's the right mode of care when showing the book to others. I will tell you that my my owner, one of the owners of our company, the, my, my boss, um, he enjoys the ability that others have to actually put their hands on the book and to touch it. So we are extra careful with it, uh, but we are not putting on gloves, RFM. We, we pull the book out. We ask people to be gentle with it. We don't allow them to go too crazy. They can flip a couple of pages, but we've never asked somebody to put gloves on, although, although that is the standard practice. And I will tell you, having watched the cook face-to-face, it felt like they were a little quicker to to move the book around and to, uh, than I would have probably wanted to be. We would probably have been a little more careful with our copy. But I, my guess is the church probably owns eight or nine, 10, 15, 30 of those. 
Uh, what's one of them if it falls on the ground? And the church has, what, $32 billion in the stock market. It's really not going to be a significant loss if that book were to just fall out of her hands and, and get uh, the binding broken. I suppose you're right. But of course, I always think about the additional problems about uh, dirt and bodily oils just from the bare hands touching such an ancient book as that. But I did think it was very interesting that first um, that this is um, once again supposed to be given the impression of being impromptu. And yet Kay Holbrook turns around and says, hey, I just happened to have brought this first edition of the Book of Mormon because I knew that the subject would come up and I thought it would be great to have it. Right. I don't think that happened. And I don't think she brought it either. I think somebody else brought it with them. I don't think it's actually her copy of the Book of Mormon. It came from a vault. It went back into a vault, probably in short order. But I did think it was humorous that the apostles comment about her having this first edition of the Book of Mormon was not about its spiritual value, but was about its monetary value. He says to her, do you know how valuable a first edition of the Book of Mormon is? Priceless. Just a few other comments. Um, I do hear how she's starting to interchange the words translation and revelation. She says translation is still relevant but it's also revelation. So I think what we're witnessing in front of our very eyes is this transfer, this shift in description of the Book of Mormon's production from translation to revelation, just like your sources said, Bill. Yeah, and again, if, if I'm right, this is not something they want to do in six months. This is something they want to do over the course of a decade or two which means there's going to be some middle ground first, which is that the Book of Mormon is both a translation and a revelation. But you can sense that nobody anymore, not anybody, wants to hold Joseph Smith to translating in the literal sense of the word. We now know that he, uh, we now know the Book of Abraham is a complete problem in terms of using the Egyptian papyri. We know that the Kinderhook plates as a attempt to scam Joseph Smith didn't operate like a translation. We know that the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible based on Haley Lamon and what she had to say in terms of their paper at BYU with Thomas Wayment uh, was that Joseph borrowed heavily to the extent where it could be considered plagiarism that he borrowed from Adam Clark's commentary to redo his Bible translation. We know that Richard Bushman talks about the Book of Mormon having way more 19th century material phrases, theology, then he's comfortable with letting it be all ancient Lamanites and Nephites. Um, and then we've got the book of Moses, which borrows heavily from Matthew chapter four, Luke chapter four. Like once we come to grips that all of Joseph's translated productions are full of contemporary source material or demonstrably not what Joseph claimed them to be in the case of the Book of Abraham or the Kinderhook Plates, we are left with having to make this shift. Or if we keep holding to literal translation, anybody who puts 25 minutes into looking this stuff up is going to realize this doesn't add up. I agree. And to put the final point on that, I thought 
that when Kate Holbrook was talking about this Orson Pratt story, that Orson Pratt comes in while Joseph Smith is doing the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. He's not using a seer stone. And Joseph Smith looks up and says, he reads Orson Pratt's mind, right? And he looks up and says, well, of course I can't use the seer stone. I'm busy using Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible. <laughs> that's, that's how you expected the conversation to go. And if Joseph was being honest and if Orson's being honest... We're going to have to deal with it at some point. If Joseph copied Adam Clark's commentary, was it in the room or did Joseph have photographic memory? Because I think if we're rational and reasonable, those are the only two conclusions we're left with. Um, And so we're going to have to kind of deal with that, I guess. Photographic memory doesn't float for me. Uh, that's extraordinary. And I see no evidence anywhere else that Joseph Smith had a photographic memory. Of that caliber, the book was in the room. Other witnesses saw it, but none of the witnesses mention it. And that, to me, is one of the most problematic things of all, because so much of early Mormonism has to do with the credibility of early witnesses. We know that Joseph Smith was using the Adam Clark commentary in doing his Joseph Smith translation, but none of the witnesses mention it, not even Sidney Rigdon, who's the main scribe, while he's doing it. And we also know, forgive me for just being so blunt here, let me put it this way, that it is my confirmed opinion, I don't want to offend anybody out there, but it is my confirmed opinion that Joseph Smith was also using the Bible when he was doing his translation of the Book of Mormon. And not only does nobody mention that he had a Bible with him and was using it in translating the Book of Mormon, at least one of the witnesses goes so far, and I think it might have even been Emma Smith, who says he had no papers or books with him. And if he had, he could not have concealed them from me. At some point, we're going to have to start really questioning the testimony of many of these witnesses to the early foundational events of Mormonism. At least that's my perspective, Bill. And I wanted to read, I'm sorry, I just pulled up this Times and Seasons or the Messenger or whatever, the Latter-day Saint Millennial Star, sorry. And I wanted to read the section kind of right before it. I, I'm just now seeing this as we're going over it. Um, Elder Pratt said he was present when this revelation was given. No great noise or physical manifestation was made. Joseph was as calm as the morning sun. But he noticed a change in his countenance that he had never noticed before. Is this the one where he starts glowing? Yeah, when a revel. Well, I don't know about that. I haven't gotten that far. So maybe, maybe. Uh, when, let's see here. When a revelation was in a sense, let me go back. But he noticed a change in his countenance that he had never noticed before when a revelation was given to him. Joseph's face was exceedingly white and seemed to shine. The speaker had been present many times when he was tra- when he was translating the New Testament and wondered why he did not use the Urim and Thummim as in translating the Book of Mormon. And it was then that the quote comes in. While this thought passed through the speaker's mind, Joseph, as if he read his thoughts, and then goes on to say that he is surpassed needing the, the Urim and Thummim, the seer stone, or the Nephite and, uh, spectacles, and has moved on. Um, it, it, at least important to note here, 1874 is when Orson Pratt writes this down, uh, and we ought to at least be careful in assuming that this is exactly how the conversation took place. 
because of the distance of time and what we know about other witness statements that seem to come that far after uh, within Mormonism. I agree. I just want to give myself a special pat on the back for recognizing what was in the quote without having seen it for many years. Yes, I do know a little bit about Mormon history. Isn't that funny? Like, to be so well-read and to know these issues and when things come up, and yet you, you know what questions to ask, you know what things to say to walk these issues in, in front of a, an Orthodox member or a defender of the faith, a, a scholar, a, a, an author, a, a church historian, it doesn't matter. And every time, these guys don't ever want to field the questions. And I'll, and I'll just say here, recently, we, you and I had this experience because we recently did a, uh, an episode on Stephen Harper where uh, Stephen, a member, the, he's a church historian in the church historian's office for the church. He does this uh, broadcast little, I don't know, 20-minute little clip message where this interviewer is asking about his feelings about how church impa- uh, church history has impacted his testimony. Sorry, I'm stammering a little bit. So Stephen, when this interview was all done, uh, Brother Harper wrote you and me, RFM, and told us that he was disappointed in, in our having uh, talked about what his thoughts were in this interview without ever asking him. And he said, look, why don't you guys just come to me? If you come to me and you can ask me any question and I will give you a, uh, a, a blunt, straightforward answer to anything you want to ask. And so I respond to Brother Harper and I say, absolutely, that'd be wonderful. Sorry that we did that. Would love to have you answer some questions. I'm, I'm glad that you promised to answer these bluntly and straightforwardly, no matter what we ask you. I said, I've only got five I'd like to ask you. And so I asked him five questions and uh, RFM, how many responses have we gotten back so far? I think that would be five minus five. Which is a big fat zero. Brother Harper, who I, again, I like him, but he, he decided to go out on a ledge and say like, I'll answer anything. And then when I, you know, I or you, when we ask the questions that are begging to be asked that walk someone right into the uh, logical fallacies of these issues, these these arguments around these issues, then all of a sudden nobody has time, everybody disappears, everybody goes away. Uh, and I think in some ways this is more of it as this conversation has progressed and we're getting towards the end, you can sense that every one of these issues gets messy, there's specifics that need to be talked about, nobody. I, I sent my stake president five questions and said, would you please send these up the ladder because I want to follow the system the way the system has been told to me that it's supposed to work. And let's see if that happens. And I said, trust me, it's not going to happen. They're not going to answer these. And they're going to make you feel bad for asking them. So he says, let's try it. So he takes my five questions. He sends them up to a 70. The 70 takes them, then gets back to him a day or so later and says, uh, President, uh, the church isn't going to answer these questions. The church would like you to sit with Brother Real and to answer these questions. Now, these aren't questions that he could answer. These are questions about general church uh, doctrine, theology, um, history. He's not equipped. He doesn't have authority. He doesn't have the wherewithal, the knowledge. He doesn't have any of it. And you can tell every single time nobody on the uh, faithful side of this who knows these issues wants to tackle any of the tough questions and Kate Holbrook and Matthew Groh have demonstrated over and over again that they're wanting to avoid anything that's super sticky as well. Isn't that amazing that Steve Harper gets 
well, frankly, gets a little butt hurt over our two-part podcast. And he's sufficiently sad, as he put it in his email to you, that we went on and talked about his interview without reaching out to him so he could find out what he really felt and then promising that he would give honest and complete answers if we asked him. You asked him questions. He goes silent. You invite him onto the podcast so he can represent himself. He goes silent. And this is just the way it is in the LDS church. As soon as you get a person who says, hey, I'm a church historian. I'll answer your questions. And I'm kind of offended here that you went on and talked about me and my interview without consulting me first. As soon as you reach out to them and say, okay, here's some questions. Come on. We'll let you talk. Then they go away into the darkness because they have nothing. And frankly, the nothing that he has sent back to you in response to your questions or in your invitation to be on the podcast gives me the idea for the closing song. We're not there yet, but would you please play for me? Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. (laughs) We will do that. Nothing from nothing means nothing. No, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. And you got to leave nothing. And you got to have something if you want to be with me. Uh, let me, I want to say one more thing, because we need to get to the next soundbite. Let me say one more thing, which is, I was in this space, maybe as much as four years ago, five years ago, where I knew the thing was a complete mess. I knew that nothing added up, but I also knew it well enough to present the mental gymnastic, faithful answers to the questions. And so I would go around uh, RFM and I would do firesides. And Uh, 40, 50, 60, 70 people would show up and these people would ask questions all night long. Uh, Went and did one in Henderson, 40 people there. We started, uh, had dinner at six, started the fireside at seven on uh, my, one of my friend's back lawns, friend now, wasn't a friend then, didn't even know the guy, but he puts on the fireside. We put lawn chairs all over the back of the home, 40 people sitting there. We started at seven o'clock and from seven until midnight, constantly, one after the other, calling on some of the raised hand. Bill, how do you make the book of Abraham work? Bill, what are we supposed to do with prophets that don't prophesy? Bill, what are we supposed to do about the kinderhook plates? Bill, what are we supposed to do about the seer stone? And, and for four, five, you know, like I said, hours, seven to eight, eight to nine, nine to 10, 10 to 11, 11 to 12. And they wanted to stay longer. We had to end it. But everybody said, no, we don't want to leave. We want to keep asking questions. I knew the answers to give. I knew how to walk people into the faithful answer and make space for people to hold on to belief, to say like, oh, that doesn't add up, but oh, there's this other way to put it together and that works. People like Matt Grow, Stephen Harper, Kate Holbrook, the fact that they know what not to talk about and what to talk about tells you they know just how messy this gets, but they also get a kick out of walking people into faithfulness, even when they know in their own mind, if they were held to their feet to the fire, that it would all fall apart if they would make space for someone to ask the questions, um, not only to let, you know, let them give an answer to the question, but then to have someone like you or me ask the follow-up question, because I know what it is that walks this stuff into them finally going, nope, this doesn't work, but you don't ever get that. These people won't address the sticky issues, and when their feet are held to the fire on the sticky issues, suddenly they've run out of time. They just can't talk about these things, and they disappear, and it's happened every single time. So my challenge 
if anybody's listening to this in the church, happy to have a 10-hour interview. I will be the softest interviewer in the world. I will ask questions. I will give them time to respond. But then I'm going to ask a follow-up question. And then when I ask that, I expect them to answer it and not to dodge it, not to leave, not to hang up the, the telephone, not to say, sorry, we can't do interviews with you. Field the tough questions. Remember, our history can withstand scrutiny. The reality is, no, it can't. Yeah, you know how many responses you're going to get to that? I think it's still five minus five, isn't it? Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. <laughs> so play the soundbite. Okay, Bill, 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 I'm sorry. Before we go to the next subject, I have this really important question I want to ask you. Because you do such a good job of talking about uh, Kate and Matt, the two historians in this face-to-face, and how you know how they feel because you used to be in that position. You used to be in that space, as you put it. Now, without predicting where they're going to be in 10 years from now, I just want to ask you if you can give us the thumbnail version of what happened that took you from the position that you used to be in to the position you're in now. Great. So essentially, it was the November 2015 policy, because up until that point, I knew the history didn't add up, but I thought that continued activity in Mormonism and by by me, as well as by all those who were struggling, that it was worth it, that the net was a positive. And when that policy came out, I went from going, the church may not be true, but it still has the ability to be good, to going to not only is the church probably not true, but that it causes deep trauma and hurt intentionally to others if that damage will protect its authority uh, in any way, shape, or form. And once I came to grips with the fact that the church will do anything, including damaging and traumatizing its own members, if that protects its authority, then I no longer had a need or a want or a desire to walk people back into belief in the nonsensical. Not that I necessarily would go around tearing anybody down, but that I no longer wanted to go around and help the doubter reconcile his testimony. Okay, I understand. Thank you for taking the time to answer that, Bill. I appreciate it. Yeah, and now we're to question number eight. Roll the tape. We're almost to the end. Um, As young adults, we face a lot of opposition and hardships in our lives. Uh, Here's a question related to this. Matias from Argentina asked, As we know, the pioneers suffered a lot and had a lot of persecution, but they remained strong. How can we take their examples to stand firm in our trials and afflictions of our earthly life? Uh, that's so touching with us here, being here to ask that uh, question. And uh, uh, Kate, just just one, any one thing about the persecution that's very touching to you. Thank you. I'm here. I, you can't see it, but I, I can look at the Mississippi River. And I remember when Emma was trying to escape the persecution in Missouri. And the river was a little bit frozen. Not enough that a wagon with people's possessions and people in it could travel on it. So it was a little dangerous. And it's a wide, wide river. And Emma had a six-year-old child holding onto this side of her skirt, an eight-year-old on this side, a two-year-old in this arm, and an infant in this arm. and one of Joseph Scribe's sisters-in-law had sewn her something that tied around her waist 
and then it went down by her legs so that under her skirt she was carrying the only copy of Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible, which he'd been working on for months. And she had to go out on that frozen river with the document and her children, and that's about it, and take one step after another across that frozen river, hoping she wouldn't fall in. That to me is the kind, that to me is the consummate signal of courage and faith that when you need to do something for what you believe, you just move forward with the people and documents that are dearest to you, one foot in front of the other. That's precious. Thanks, Kate. Yesterday, in uh, trying to be spiritually prepared for this, uh, my wife and I decided that we would uh, uh, start in Kansas City and, and go to Liberty Jail and go to Far West and then uh, take pretty much the route that uh, the saints took in trying to escape Missouri and and uh, come to Nauvoo and, and uh, we went to Carthage uh, where it was martyred. And uh, Basically what they end up having now out of a total of nine questions and the ninth question is going to be sort of a summary question, but they have one evening it's devoted to questions about church history and somehow they managed to have not one but two questions dealing with the sacrifice of the saints. And the first question has to do with, you know, those saints who built the Kirtland Temple, they sure sacrifice a lot. And how can we sacrifice as much as they did so that we can, you know, get all those blessings and draw near to the Savior like they did? And I hear brown nosing questions like that, and I just go crazy. But here we have another one. It's number eight. It's another softball question. It's about sacrifice. And it effectively plays the victim card because we would never want to have an LDS presentation about church history where we don't play the victim card. So Kate Holbrook gets to do it and she tells a story about Emma and it's very faithful and I, you know it's, it's a woman talking about a woman and I think that's great. And it was very faithful of Emma. She's got these kids, so one in her arms, one to, to the side, one to the right side and probably about 23 sister wives right behind her as she's crossing the frozen Mississippi River. But, you know, from this perspective now, it doesn't take away from her faith, because God knows she went through hell being married to Joseph Smith. But she had the faith. But she goes through all of this in order to preserve what, Bill? The documents on which Joseph Smith has been writing out the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. And it doesn't take away from her faith, but it does make me look at it just a little bit differently from this perspective now with the research that has just come out this year and has yet to come out, I think, in a, in a month or two in a book published by the University of Utah Press that really Joseph Smith in his translation was plagiarizing extensively from a Bible commentary that was current at the time called the Adam Clark Bible Commentary. Yeah, so essentially she's carrying Adam Clark's words with her across the frozen river, which will become the LDS inspired translation of the Bible. My only issue here is how they're using the story, which is what they're saying. And what Kate Holbrook says is when you go through all these hardships, all you have is the sacred writ to rely on. Like, like the fact that there's a book of Mormon, the fact that there's this inspired translation in Emma's hands, this is where our faith is placed. And, and what she's done is the same thing that Stephen did in, in his uh, 
18 minute conversation with that young lady that we dissected a few weeks ago, which is to say like, look, there's questions. We don't have good answers, but we, but we have our faith and our faith is placed in having prayed about these sacred uh, text, these scriptural uh, writings. And that's what we're going to go on. And she's using it the same way. When Emma crosses the icy waters, she had to rely on her faith in these sacred documents that she's carrying. And each of us can uh, rest our faith in our testimonies of these sacred documents. And hence, any of these questions that we have, they just get in the way anyway. Yes. And finally, this also where Elder Cook talks is the third flub or gaffe that he gives in the presentation. And you, and you don't hear it so well in the version you played. But originally what he said, and he said it quite clearly, was that he and his wife, to prepare spiritually for tonight's event, had done this this trip through church history spots from Missouri and then to Carthage and then to Nauvoo where they're having the face-to-face presentation. But what he said very clearly in the original, and which did receive some commentary because it was amusing, was he said that they went to Carthage where the Savior was martyred went to Carthage, uh, where the Savior was martyred. uh... Now, obviously, he meant to say where Joseph Smith was martyred. And once again, I totally give him a pass. That is not a big deal. It's just kind of funny that he would say where the Savior was martyred because one of the criticisms about the church for a long time is that the church tends to put such a high degree of emphasis on Joseph Smith that it seems sometimes like they almost worship Joseph Smith. And his gaffe plays right into that perception by saying, instead of Joseph Smith, which everybody knows he meant, instead he says, we went to Carthage where the Savior was martyred. Now in the version you played, you don't hear that. And you don't hear Joseph Smith because after it got out that he had said this, uh, what the church did, once again, this went up, this was originally broadcast on September 9th, 2018 in the evening. But two days later on September 11th, the church pulled the video down from YouTube where they had it posted. They edited out where he says the Savior, and they put it back up on YouTube. So when you play it or when you listen to the improved version, and and somebody did save the original version, so that is available. But now he doesn't say the Savior. He doesn't say Joseph Smith. He just sort of says, uh, went to Carthage where was martyred. There's just an S sound there and uh, come to Nauvoo, and, and uh, we went to Carthage, uh, where he was martyred. And uh... Yeah, and as you point out, it's the evangelical criticism of Mormonism is that Mormons put Joseph Smith so high on a pedestal. While I don't think this is a big deal, I do think it's a big deal that they removed it in a sense, and, and, and maybe not, maybe it's no big deal to even fix it, but in a conversation where you say, look, we're going to be transparent. We're going to put all the information out there. We're not going to hide anything. When you start removing things that uh, don't look so good, you, in a sense, are, again, hiding something. Now, I get it. They want to certainly protect themselves from being criticized by evangelicals. The evangelicals could use that audio and say, look, he says it right here and misuse it. What I will say, though, while I don't think it's a big deal, it certainly shows, I think, in Elder Cook's brain how conflated Joseph Smith is with Jesus, that it was so such an easy mistake to make. Um, 
in Mormonism, the Savior a lot of times tends to take a back seat to all the Mormon things we do. And I, th- I think this gaffe is a reflection of how Jesus is not as central to Mormonism as we like to say, and not certainly not when compared to other uh, denominations of Christianity and how they place Jesus in the center. It's, it's, it's a much different thing in Mormonism. So I can see why he made the mistake as well, why it was easy to have a little slip of the tongue there. I do too. And, you know, I've been a Mormon for 40 years and it is clear to me from my experience in my study that Mormons do not put Joseph Smith up there with Jesus Christ. They do not worship Joseph Smith. However, there really are only two people in Mormonism and its history and its scriptures that they would ever really refer to as being martyred. And one of them is Jesus Christ and one of them is Joseph Smith. Right. Um, And the recognition that anything that ties to Jesus and Mormonism goes through a living prophet. And anytime you try to separate those two, in other words, the prophet, anything he says is the words of Jesus. Anything that the church does is the actions of Jesus. It, it kind of convolutes that even more. Like it becomes, it becomes obvious that church members focus is often on the authorities of the church, and Jesus is simply a mode of transportation to get people to be obedient to the current leadership. And that tends to play itself out uh, in lots of ways within Mormonism. No, it does, absolutely. In fact, I've said sometimes that in the Mormon church, the leaders of the church equal God, and God equals the leaders of the church. Now, no Mormon would come out and say that or say that that's true, But over and over and over and over again, we use language and concepts and ideas that say the same thing. Elder Cook did it earlier in this very presentation. You you remember his final comments on the polygamy question. What he talks about there is uh, he lets the, the historians deal with the historical aspects, you know, their generalized sort of apologetic responses to the questions they're not telling the audience about. And then he comes in and he says, well... Uh, God and Jesus Christ want us to be happy. And he's talking about plural marriage, right? Uh, God and Jesus Christ want us to be happy and we can trust them. And what he's saying there is God equals the leaders of the church because God and Jesus want us to be happy. Therefore, if they say you got to do plural marriage, it's for us to be happy. But really, it kind of begs the question about whether it's God doing it or whether it's the leaders of the church. But even that statement contains within it that idea that God and Jesus do equal the leaders of the church in common Mormon parlance. We've got one clip left. Uh, You ready to roll the tape? Hallelujah. Awesome. So we feel like we've found a good topic for us to end on. Christian from Honduras asked, what has been the event of the restoration that has most strengthened your testimonies and how can we apply it to ourselves? And Isai from Mexico asked, I want to know what the restoration means to you and how it has helped you and your families. Let's each one of us take a turn on this and, and close with testimony. Would that be all right? Who wants to start? Can I go first, Kate? Sure. Okay, thanks, Kate. Yeah. There's a lot to choose from. <laughs> but, but the first thing that comes to my mind is the Holy Ghost. 
the gift of the Holy Ghost, the ability to have that more permanently with us. When, when Joseph and Oliver received the Aaronic priesthood and were baptized, they didn't immediately receive the Holy Ghost like we do uh, more frequently now. They had to wait months and think to ask for it and receive the Melchizedek priesthood, and then they could receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I, I study women's history, and some teachings that have really been meaningful to me are Sister Sherry Dew, when she was in the Relief Society General Presidency, and Sister Julie Beck, when she was the Relief Society General President. Both of those women taught that the skill of learning to understand the promptings of the Holy Ghost, Sherry Dew called it the language of revelation, is one of the most important skills that we can develop during this life. And then President Nelson, in his first general conference address as the prophet of the church, encouraged us to learn that language of revelation. And he reminded us that when to take our questions in prayer and then to listen. And this is something that, that I've tried to do, to take my questions in prayer and then remember to listen. And I even write things down when ideas come to me, and they do come to me. It's, they come to me when I'm preparing a gospel doctrine lesson. That's my calling right now. And they come to me when it's a bigger question or, or more long-term question. That, that Holy Ghost, I even felt it. It's not a vending machine. <laughs> so <laughs> we spend our lives putting ourselves in holy places, and, and inviting the Spirit into our lives, and then it will just come at sacred moments. And one of these, for me, just happened on Friday. We were in the airport in Des Moines waiting for our rental car, and we were going to go to Carthage. And so I uh, read from saints the account of Carthage and the martyrdom, and, and standing there with my, with my family, just quietly reading this account, I was filled with a sense of the holiness and sacredness of that sacrifice just came. So grateful for the Holy Ghost. So Kate uh, is asked, what event in the restoration has been a testimony builder to her? So I'm sure she racked her brain. She's thinking about all the events. There's so many events, Radio Free Mormon, tons of events, lots of events in the restoration um, it's basically consistent, most of them. And she's asked to pull from all these events to tell which one was faith promoting to her. And having gone over all the events in her mind, she's left with the fact that none of the events are faith promoting. So then she throws out a theological idea, the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is a faith promoting idea. And I don't understand that at all. Like the Holy Ghost bears testimony of truth according to mormonism it's not an event in the restoration um the fact that she can't name an event has the holy ghost seemingly unable to bear testimony to her of any one event that did that was faith promoting and so she constantly just keeps saying the holy ghost this the holy ghost that elder nelson tells us to get our own revelation she basically did what stephen harper did except she did it much quicker didn't take her 18 minutes she essentially said, there isn't an event in church history that's faith-promoting. I don't know what else to tell you, so I'll tell you the Holy Ghost. And if we just rely and count on and depend on the spiritual experiences we've had regarding the Restoration, even though none of the events are faith-promoting, the history is so messy, we can't tell you about it. Even if we wanted to, we don't have time to do it. 
And at the end of the day, the fact that you had a spiritual experience is all that's left. And just like with Stephen Harper's commentary, this entire thing falls apart um, because you could tell through the entire thing, nobody in that group really wanted to talk about the tough questions people had, and nobody in that group had good answers for them anyway. Yeah, those are good points. It is a strange thing when a church historian is asked, what event in the Restoration has most strengthened your testimony? And she comes back with no event at all, but instead talks about the gift of the Holy Ghost. It does make you wonder. And also, this isn't hitting her for the first time. It's not like she didn't know this question was coming. She's not answering it flat-footed. But instead of giving a an event from the Restoration that has most strengthened her testimony, she avoids it. And from that, one could infer that, you know, none of the events of the Restoration really strengthen her testimony. Of course, now you'll probably be getting an email from Kate Holbrook saying that we've misrepresented her and uh, that... If I'll her send her, her the same five questions and we'll see if she answers them. <laughs> okay. But yeah, this gift of the Holy Ghost thing. And part of this, excuse me, and part of this that's, that strikes me as somewhat odd, just historically, and this is her bailiwick, the church history, is that she mentions that uh, here's Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and you know, they got the Aaronic priesthood, but they didn't have the gift of the Holy Ghost, and they had to wait for several months, and then they got the Melchizedek priesthood, and finally they were able to get the gift of the Holy Ghost. But this gift of the Holy Ghost is so significant that prior to receiving it, without the gift of the Holy Ghost, Joseph Smith sees God the Father in Jesus Christ. He has an angel appear to him on multiple occasions and give him a record written on gold, which he translates by the gift and power of God. And then he has the angel John the Baptist appear to him, and he receives all sorts of revelations from God. Now, that's bare bones minimum. And Joseph Smith does all that prior to receiving the Melchizedek priesthood, and therefore he does it prior to receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. So in historical context, even as Kate lays it out, I'm not exactly clear on why the gift of the Holy Ghost is considered to be so special. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, you have had a chance to listen to Elder Quentin Cook uh, Matthew Grow, uh, Kate Holbrook, uh, their face-to-face event with the youth of our church, where they tackle the difficult questions within church history without ever telling you what the questions actually are that people are asking, not having enough time to give you the answers, and asking you just to rely on your spiritual experiences from the past, even if none of this adds up, and even if a church historian can't find a single event in the entire restoration that is faith-promoting. Um, there you go, my friends. That is uh, Elder Cook in his face-to-face event and the dissection by Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon. Play my song, Bill.